there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, we're back with part two of American Jollo. Quentin Tarantino, Roger Avery, and Eli Roth continue on in their debate of exactly what constitutes this genre, seeing if any of our four films fit the bill. We'll start off the episode with one of Eli Roth's favorite films. 1976's Alice Sweet Alice is destined to give you a fright. When Alice's sister Karen is found brutally murdered in a church, suspicions turn towards Alice. But could a 12-year-old girl really be the killer? The group talks about the role that religion plays in Jalo, how director Alfred Soule pulled off a period piece on a budget, and how the identity of the villain is just too good to spoil. And wrapping it up, let's all sing happy birthday to me. Virginia is about to celebrate her 18th birthday, but before she can throw her party, her friends are murdered off one by one. Directed by Jay Lee Thompson, this film features amazing gags, unique kills, and one of the most gut-wrenching brain surgery scenes you'll ever see. So make sure to RSVP. It'll be a killer party. I'm Gala Avery, and let's jump right back into the conversation. Okay, so now, uh, so let's move on to Alice Sweet Alice. Oh, I love this movie. Okay, so now, when I was bringing up the idea of uh, doing a, an American Jallo show, this was Eli's suggestion. He was like, oh, you got to add Alice Sweet Alice. It's completely an American Jallo. Now, I have not seen Alice Sweet Alice since it came out, all right, in- 76. Well, yeah. well I, did, I, had, no, I had never seen it. It didn't come out in Los Angeles in 76. It didn't okay. come out until after Brooke Shields' fame, and it was released as Alice Sweet Alice. Um, so it came out either towards the end of 78 or the beginning of 79. It was much better and more impressive than I expected it to be, but I didn't necessarily like it. But then as time has gone on, its reputation and what Alfred Soule did has really kind of stayed in my mind. I was really looking forward for an, uh, an excuse to watch it again. And this was my excuse. So I had a very interesting uh, uh, take on the whole thing. I'm looking forward to, uh, to talk about that. But Eli, why don't you read the back of the box? Gladly. 
we are looking at an alpha video copy, which has the, the one of the lightest cassettes of, the of lightest, all time. It's, if I if I let it go, it will blow up in the air. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, like uh, normally we try to. Uh, uh, there's such a thing as six hour mode. Uh, like this tape looks like it's recorded in yeah. eight hour mode. Yeah, yeah. We, we, which means it would use less tape, which means it would be lighter. We never fixed the tracking right. Yeah. Okay, there always was a little bit of tracking static going on, and there was a constant buzz from the beginning to the end. Yeah, as if it had taped over something else. This tape is like, it's like we're watching as if we were underwater. Yeah. With yeah. no goggles. Um, so Alice, Sweet Which Alice. Which just shows how good it was because it grabbed I, us anyway. It. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, and the movie looks beautiful. Even on the 10th generation. Yeah, even on this eight bootleg. hour mode. Alice, Sweet Alice. It's got the classic artwork from the poster, if you know it, which is a doll with a bloody butcher knife and the blood drips into the bloody letters, Alice, Sweet Alice. Which is like dripping down on Dripping Brooke down. Shields' name almost. And then it says starring Brooke Shields, who's in it for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> And then Alice, sweet Alice, on the back of the- Not only that, she's on the on the. Uh, spine. Well, of course she she's is. On the side, but I mean, yeah. it's just like Brooke Shields. <laughs> what is Linda Miller going to be on the yeah. side? Of course, it's going to be Brooke Shields. Mystery, suspense, and terror—everything you ever wanted in a horror movie. Patterson, New Jersey, is the setting. A local family has two daughters. Karen is the good girl, and Alice is jealous and vengeful. Karen disappears from her first communion ceremony and is later found brutally murdered in the rear of the church. Is it really possible that her own sister could have done it? Her mother says no. Her aunt says yes. Someone is attacking the people in Alice's building. Learn the truth about Alice and the terror surrounding her as this horror unfolds. That's a pretty yeah. good description for the back of the box. I mean, uh, I oftentimes that. I have to like... Yeah horn in and actually give a better description that actually just does a really good job without spoiling shit if you survive the night nothing will scare you again yes that's on the front it's interesting this movie really really feels like a giallo film mm -hmm. from the rainy mood to the girls in the yellow raincoats to the music with kind of the childlike chorus it's disconcerting <laughs> it uses it has the use of the yellow raincoats and it's very kind of don't look now mood yeah and this weird plastic mask that the mm. killer wears that which is a similar to the plastic mask that the killer in new year's evil wears isn't yeah, it? yeah very similar to that so mm. it's it's really feels like if you didn't know an american directed this you could say alfred soleil directed it and you'd say yeah. this was an italian who came to make a movie in patterson is it alfred soleil or alfred soleil it's alfred soleil yeah, he's okay, a, yeah. a guy from patterson new jersey and because it's shot in New Jersey, he has access to some regional actors and some New York actors and New York theater well, actors. Well, we talked about that. One of the things that's really strong about the movie is on one hand, it feels like a regional horror film, like a kind of horror film that would be shot in Cleveland or yes. something like that. And you're using Cleveland actors. Don't go in the basement. Or yeah. However, the there is a distinctive New Jersey element. And the only other movie that really has that really distinctive New Jersey element is uh, uh, Don't Go in the House. But the thing is, while they do seem like extremely good regional actors... That's also because he he's close enough to New York, all right, to get actually legit yeah. New York acting talent, all right, to appear in his film. Yeah, there's good performances in mm -hmm. this. But the thing that I think distinguishes this and that really makes it a giallo is that this Alfred Soule, before he was making movies, went to study architecture. Mm -hmm. And he actually, he made kind of three movies and then had such a bad time. He's like, I should have basically just stay he's like i should have stayed in patterson he went to hollywood mm -hmm. to try and make movies and it didn't work out so he directed a lot of television and then he's like fuck this i'm going to be a production designer he production designed veronica mars but the basically the back half of his career mm -hmm. was as a production designer wow so when really? you look at the movie one of the things i didn't realize it's so moody and it's so beautifully done but i'm like wow the cars are really cool look at the wallpaper mm -hmm. it's got the thing the opening of deep red has 
And this time I realized I was like, this fucking movie set in 1961. Yeah, it's a period mm-hmm. piece. It's a period piece. And it's got Kennedy on the walls. I mean, the That's whole, a big deal for a low-budget movie. For to, a low-budget movie, off, yeah. they really pull it off and they don't make you feel... It doesn't feel cheap. Like, mm-hmm. the exteriors, like, they're very rainy with all the cars kind of driving through and the way they pull the costumes and they do things at the, at the priest's house. And it's got the humor with the old Monsignor mm-hmm. and the woman taking care of him. He's just like, you know, she's like, he used to be a great man, but he's mm-hmm. like, I want my dessert now. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. it's it's beautiful. It's moody. The way, the the murder during the communion, it's very much like Fulci's, you know, don't torture a duckling. Yeah, uh-huh. There's so many great things about the movie, but from the music it's, to the there mood. Is, there is an aspect of this is like a New Jersey version of don't torture a duckling. It really is. Especially <laughs> there's a scene where, you know, the, the girls, the two sisters are fighting. The father is gone. She gets the bridal veil. Mm-hmm. And then she's taking the doll. And then Brooke, Shields runs off into this abandoned warehouse and Alice, creepy doll. the creepy, the girl is a creepy two-faced doll. Yeah. There's like a doll with two heads like on a it. a smiley face and a, a crying face. Yeah. And she goes and she puts on the mask and scares her Brooke Shields and locks her. You're like, it, it's like a really good kind of fake out mm-hmm. stock and slash that, that you realize there's something very off with Alice. Mm-hmm. And then at the communion when they're waiting and then they do the classic thing where Alice disappears. We don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. Where is she? And then the murder, the, the plastic face with someone just strangling her. It's a really, really violent death and then putting the body inside the bench and lighting it on fire yeah, yeah. so the nuns start to smell it while communion and, and Alice just wants communion she can't get it it's mm-hmm. really really interesting mm-hmm. the religious themes and you're like it can't be the priest because this was happening yeah so, well, someone has religious someone, issues who made this movie. Some, you know, someone but, has an issue with Catholicism well, they definitely, well, <laughs> well, and also it's the emphasis on Catholicism that also makes it feel very much like a jallo and yeah yeah it makes it, it gives it, it Italian like it, Roman origins. Yeah. Roman origins, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and of course, I personally love it because it has two cast members from Bloodsucking Freaks, which mm-hmm. is Niles McMaster, amazing who QB, the quarterback, and mm-hmm. Alfonso De Noble. You know, he plays the pedophile in this movie. Yeah. He, did, he he was a theater actor. He only did three movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the third film was called like Night of the Zombies in 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at 31, he died and. Director Joel Reed of Bloodsucking Freaks. The only backup we have is Joel Reed's word. No one is, because mm-hmm. I looked and no one's found the, the autopsy. Apparently he got, he's so fat, he was stuck in a turnstile mm. and the police had to let him out and it made the papers and he was so humiliated, he killed himself. Now, Joel Reed claims that. So there's no one, no one can mm-hmm. verify it. He's really disturbing. He just goes full on creepy. Oh, I mean, it, with this girl, it's like it's it's very uncomfortable scenes. He's so legitimately creepy. He's creepier than any K and B creation could ever possibly be. Yet I felt that from the time that I saw him. I mean, there was almost one of the like, is this guy a real guy? Not his personality per se, but just the creepiness that is him. The, the grotesqueness of his form. Yeah. Uh, well, but it's interesting though. It's a weird kind of grotesque. Okay. Uh, you can't stop looking at him. Yeah. He's mesmerizing to look at. It's not like I can't look away. Well, he, well, I can't because, tear my eyes away. Because he's doing this very sort of strange performance where he's he's the character in his own mind has this sort of elegance where he's lying, he's reclining on a chaise, like a grand old stroking dam. a cat, fanning himself, listening to a Victrola. Yeah. It's really strange. It's like someone who's 
you know, imagining himself like some sort of 1930s theater star. It's really interesting in this creepy yeah. tenement. And he's the landlord. And the mothers, you know, they keep he's sending kind of the kids. kind of a shut-in. Yeah. yeah. Send, would you send your kids to, uh, to here, take some cake up to the, feel like he can't crazy, down the freaky stairs. guy yeah. Yeah. And he's, he tries, <laughs> he's like, the stores don't deliver. Can you go out? He's some really weird, agoraphobic lunatic. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the, the movie's populated with that. And also by really, really strong performances. You know, you really feel for... You know, Linda Miller, the the, the mother mo- who's dealing with the, the mother gives a fantastic performance. Yes. I mean, really, really terrific. Yeah. And and She's the aunt is almost like you know, in Donnie Darko, the woman who wants yeah, no, to the shut aunt down is sparkle like, motion. No, the aunt is is like a, a, a character out of a uh, John Waters movie, or like it's, you said, Jane Jane Lowry. Darko. Jane yeah. Lowry played the aunt. I actually think the best scene in the movie isn't one of the horror scenes. Um, even though it's hard to get more than when the fathers attack. All right, that that gets pretty amazing. But uh, you don't like the aunt, whether it's good things or whether it's tragedy. She keeps trying to intrude herself, you know, uh, on her sister and her sister. What's going on with her sister? And so you just don't like her, and she does seem unfair to Alice. Whether Alice is the killer or not, if she is the killer, it's probably because this aunt helped push her over the edge. And she's got this whole Joan Crawford, mommy dearest kind of. Yeah. Yes. And she's got the, the, the Ed Pressman henpecked husband. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she's obviously the loud mouth of the family that like is able to get everybody to do what she wants out of screeching. But then she's attacked by who she, and frankly, we think is Alice on the stairs. All right. Uh, in, in the little, killer garb, uh, the, the mask and the little uh, yellow raincoat. It might be the most realistic knife attack I've ever seen in yes. a horror film. Yes. It's not done in a horror film style. It's a little sloppy almost. It's, like. it's sloppy, but like, but each knife hit finds its place in either her leg or her, her foot. Shit her foot. And her foot that just really seems like completely yeah. disturbing. She's, she's yeah. coming, she's walking down this tiny stairwell in this tenement and the killer pops out with white gloves. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Not uh-huh. black gloves, the white glove killer uh-huh. in the yellow raincoat with a mask. This butcher knife kind of goes through the banister legs and just starts slashing and, st- and gets mm-hmm. her at the top of her foot, then yeah. gets the shin and it's like she can't but with, yeah. get in the and then she falls And then she falls down the stairs and has what I would imagine as realistic a reaction to a knife attack yeah. as I as you're going to see. Also, the knife only goes so deep. Mm-hmm. It's like realistically how a yeah. knife wouldn't sink all the way to the hilt. It goes, you know, a few inches, an inch or two to, mm-hmm. until it hits maybe some bone or something. And, and she, then, she's stabbing her and it's like, and then I'm she's, feeling she's every She's screaming sta- enough that the neighbors come out that the killer has to run away and she tumbles down the stairs and she crawls out. Oh my God. And yeah. it's perfect we're recording this in what I think is one of the rainiest days I've seen in Los Angeles in a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She comes out into this pouring, pouring rainstorm mm-hmm. and the sister are there. It's torrential and the blood's dripping. She's screaming for help. And mm-hmm. then the husband pulls up. It's really, really fantastic. Okay. But that's the, scene. that's the knife. The, this, and I like that scene, but the scene that I think is, wow, when this movie really kind of kicked it up to a new level is the follow-up scene where the aunt with every right intention possible thinks that Alice attacked her. But if when the cops go to interview the aunt, if she says Alice attacks her, well, Alice is going to be the number one suspect for the cops. So the mother is trying to protect Alice. And she's obviously the, the, the shrieking violet amongst the two sisters, just turns into a different person and says, I will never forgive you if you blame Alice for this. And then it all kind of comes to a head when the cops and Alice, everybody shows up in, 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 in the room and 
the mother's ferociousness against the sister makes the sister start crying. And this is a character we have not had any sympathy for whatsoever. And we do an emotional switcheroo during the watching of the movie. We see it from the poor attacked aunt's eyes. I don't want to lose you, my sister, but your fucking daughter tried to kill me with yeah. a fucking butcher knife. Yeah. And she's crying. <laughs> and that aunt, that aunt becomes more unhinged in every single scene, and she her face becomes more contorted. And the lipstick almost feels like but, it becomes yeah, I mean, I mean, more, I mean, more uh The juggling, the, the directorial juggling of the high energy of that, you know, theoretically amateur cast for that scene to get as big and big and big as it gets and to actually really kind of deliver and actually have us have a different emotional response to it. That scene blew me away. It That's just blew, amazing. The, the directorial aspect of it and handling all those performances really blew me away. No, when Linda Miller's saying, I, you know, you, you know where she's going and she's mm -hmm. like, and the aunt is just there and she hasn't said anything. We don't even know if she could speak. Mm -hmm. And the aunt is just sort of turns her face away. Mm -hmm. And Linda's going, you know, just you can't, you can't say it was Alice. And just the one tear runs down her eye. Like, I, you just know and it's coming. Even, even the idea that they, they've set up that the aunt's husband is this henpecked little guy, all right, that she bosses around. And then in her complete trauma and anxiety, she just starts screaming for her husband. She wants him. She wants She's him. Like, Where is he? Yeah. And then it just actually adds just a level of depth to her character that it, uh, it's actually touching that the movie offers her. Well, and then it sets up the device of locking Alice away. Mm -hmm. You don't want to see Alice get locked up. Then when the killer kills while Alice is in the asylum, it vindicates her. Mm -hmm. And this movie does an interesting thing that not a lot of Jala movies do, where they solve it about an hour and 20 minutes into yeah. it. And maybe they thought the audience was going to figure it out. But it does this thing where it's like, okay, you have the mom goes to the house of the killer for help and she has to wait around. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we reveal who the killer is. So now we know that the mother's at the killer's house. And then you're just like, well, where else? Could... And then the movie doesn't end there. And then she leaves. And there is the last 15 minutes. Where you're like, where the fuck is this movie going? Yeah, that seemed like a great place to end the movie. In why, 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 movie, why didn't they end it there? That's yeah. where you're supposed to end it, where your yeah. main character is in the house. And we were the all killer. right there. And, we were all right there in the kitchen. bringing yeah. her coffee and she's bringing the knife. And you're just like, what is going on? This can't. And then... They don't end it, and it, it's just a setup for the finale, which I think is so spectacular yeah. and really, really pays no, off. I'm literally thinking for 10 minutes, oh, wow, they messed up. You're they, thinking they, they messed They missed up. their subway stop. They missed, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This movie's going on too long. And what, you realize, no, they're going to that stop. And <laughs> then, <laughs> they wanted to go there. And then the ending happens when we know who the killer is, but who gets killed is such a shock. Mm -hmm. And it's done, it's so bloody. Mm -hmm. And it's in the church, and it's just really this literal attack on religion. It's sublime. Mm -hmm. Well, it's such a great finale. You know, it, it is, and then it ends with this track. Well, the best last shot of the entire quadruple yes. of movies. The last shot is just fantastic. Yeah, just this moving back dolly shot, just yeah. moving through the crowd through the. Well, crowd. Go, no, the way it goes, moving back, blah, 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 then on the bag, then on the knife, then yeah. on Alice. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the movie is an indictment of Catholicism. Which most Italian jallos are. They're but, not advertising but Catholicism. More, Ful, They're, made, this is why this is why we're fucked up. No, he <laughs> he made Beatrice Chenchi and Don't yeah. Torture a Duckling, and that's why the critics turned on him. But more than an attack on the Catholicism, Catholic more than an attack on that, because that's almost easy. What's hard is the period stuff. Mm -hmm. I keep yes. I keep thinking about that because 
you know, when you're making a movie, the first thing that like the producers would be telling you is, look, all this period stuff, you know, you're, you're going to have, have a, you're going to lose a day. You have a full communion. You need every extra dressed and made up in hair. Yeah. Everyone well, has to be 1961. They must, he must be making a statement about America, not just Catholicism, but about who we are as a country at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, it was 75 when he shot because it. He, doesn't, probably, he probably wrote it when Ford was in office. Right. He doesn't just- yeah. sh- But Kennedy he, is the president because we see the Kennedy, but but even before he's you see- talking about, He's talking about a country that is yeah. broken, yeah. basically, yeah. Is, is is the point. Mm-hmm. A country that is, you well, know- it's symbolized by the family. The father's gone. Yeah, we, yeah. Which is symbolized by the father you know, mm-hmm. being gone. And so what he could have had- in shooting time for the cost of doing all of the mm-hmm. uh, period stuff. I mean, he had to justify it. He had to really want it. He had yeah. to have a meaning to do it. He had to have the need to do it. But, you know, here's the thing about it, though. As we were watching the movie, I was putting it under the microscope a little bit about why is this so well done compared to other films of its ilk? While Alice We Alice doesn't have uh, any more money or any any larger budget, than other movies made of its time and of its ilk. I think it's pretty obvious he had more time making it. He had there he had a length to his shooting schedule that is not normal for this type of movie. And you can tell by the unheard of number of setups he does in the course of of of, of scenes. Those church sequences are magnificent. Yeah. But even magnificently like, there's put a whole together. little montage of Brooke Shields riding the bike. That's yeah. about like you know, there's about like thirteen or fourteen setups or something like that. Oh, for sure. You know, for but, sure. But mo- even more than that, it feels like he has time. This does not feel like a rushed production in. Anyway, not an elephant time production. It has all the time in the world and they had no, too much time. It's, but there, there, there's well, you can tell. almost part of 70s low budget cinema is the rush aspect is built into its DNA. And when you see a film that's not rushing, you notice it. Well, he's Would got, you agree with that? I, completely. Because what you get are the details. Like when the milk bottle drops, the close yeah. up of the milk bottle and the foot stepping on the glass. And she goes, stop stepping on the glass. And they do. Mm-hmm different angles of it and the way the sort of rituals Alice has this weird shrine in her basement with these dolls <laughs> and the mask and the close-ups and things that you know on film take Alice a long... is a really great character um, she really is way, so let's talk about that actress who plays Alice probably, Paula E. Shepard yeah Paula yeah. Shepard like Brooke Shields probably what 10, 11 yeah. when she's in it uh-huh. Paula Shepard was 19 when they made that oh really and she plays a really great 13 year old little girl because you're thinking this is one of the best child performance actors. Yeah. And the next movie she did was a few years later, it was Liquid Sky. And then she was out. Oh, the, well, yeah. She's like Marek Kanievska film. Yeah. yeah. I, it's such a cool performance. But, and, and I think that because he's an architect and a production designer, he really has an eye for detail. I didn't see his second film, Tanya's Island, which apparently- and I, I've, I've seen the trailer on uh, The Best of Sex and Violence a right. zillion times. And yeah. apparently it's, it's with Vanity, but apparently Rob Bottin- Oh, he did, did the an monkey. amazing yeah. gorilla suit. But yeah. I did see another film of his, which again- Well, plays, his one studio film. His one studio film, which plays with every convention of the slasher genre, mm-hmm. which is Pandemonium. Yeah, which was originally called uh, uh, Thursday the 12th. Thursday, and it's a parody of these movies. So he's he's very, very, very aware of the conventions of the genre. But the thing is sad is like, you know, because everyone was talking about what a good job he did directing, that was his studio crossover movie. Yeah. Pandemonium. Then Roger Corman releases Saturday the 14th. So now the whole, the only reason they made the movie was to make a joke. 
yeah. on the title. So then they have to change the title, and then they just released it in a few marks and said, "Fuck this shit." Yeah, and that was and it. that was the end. And that was the end of his the director. Uh, he he also suffered the same thing that happened uh, to Toby Hooper. He was attached to this project and that yeah. project, and then he and then things happened that made him drop out just before, like the way Toby Hooper almost directed The Dark, yeah, and then got fired. And then he almost directed Venom, and he got fired. You know. I remember a lot of different uh, Fangoria and Cinema Fantastic notices that Albert Soul was going to be directing something or other, and then it, it, it turned out it never out. happened. And he said, I mean, he did television, like you said, the Marvel's Place pilot. And then mm-hmm. after, he just kind of quit to be a production designer. And he said, it's sad he died in 2022 in February mm-hmm. that he won't hear this. But he, um, he said he wished he had stayed in Patterson, New Jersey, making independent films with his friends. He's like, mm-hmm. that was when he, you know, was happiest. Me too. Now, let me bring up my reaction to the movie when I saw it. Originally or? Originally. Or- yeah, originally. And then how I feel about it now. Okay, so like I said, I saw Alice Sweet Alice when it came out. I wasn't expecting it to be very good, but it's definitely an odd duck. It had its own odd quality and it wasn't bad. I, I, I knew it wasn't a bad movie, but I didn't warm up to it. I didn't really like it per se. My biggest problem, look, my biggest problem with Alice Sweet Alice as a movie is when it comes to tone, the film is perfect. The tone of the film is not only perfect, it's also perfectly unique to the movie itself. The film has bad pacing problems. The movie doesn't flow from one scene to the next scene. It doesn't, it's, it's not herky. It's not jerky. It doesn't jerk from one scene to the next scene, but good scenes don't build on other scenes. There is a, this sequence is over and then another sequence starts and it takes a little bit to get into it. And then it does, but there's not a flow. And I, and I do think one of the things that the film needed was a more pronounced soundtrack. And I think, you know, this is a movie that if it had a Morricone soundtrack. Or a Pino Donaggio. Yeah. But especially Morricone, I think. This is the one where I would give it yeah, to Morricone. Morricone, for you know, sure. A more Italian laid on soundtrack that deals with the religious themes and deals with the religious uh, uh, choir mm-hmm. kind of things. I One, I think it would have actually held the movie together. I think it would have filled in those cracks and filled in those yeah, fissures and air pockets. Like a Bruno Nikolai harpsichord kind yeah. of score. I'd even go for Nico like, Fidenko. Oh, Fidenko? Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. I thought Morricone is still the best choice for that. Morricone, yeah. but yeah, but Bruno Nicolai did the, the Red Queen Kill seven times yeah, 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 and yeah, those yeah. types of harpsichord kind of sounds. But yeah, Morricone and that, that, that early Morricone yeah. stuff would have been incredible. Okay, so, and I do think that would have filled in the, the gaps. But also, you know, Niles McMaster is just the weakest actor of the bunch. He looks the part as mm. the dad, but yeah. he's the least. But he's, he's not bad. He's not bad. He's not bad. But he's not as good as the others. But he's not as good as the father. He's not as good as the uh, as the priest. Father yeah. Tom. Father Tom. Uh, um, and he's definitely not as good as. Lin- but he's not bad though. I I, I liked he, him by the end. By the end, I by the end I liked he's him. He's a little bit movie glue. The guy that's just sort of holding it together. That's kind mm. of clear. You can see through him. You don't know. Well, he looks like a soap opera actor. As a matter of fact, he reminds you of somebody that would be on Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman. Yeah. No, <laughs> Which, but that's a positive thing. <laughs> Which he was. But by the way, he was on Edge of Night at oh, the time he was. for a okay, long yeah. time. Uh-huh. Was but like maybe faster. that no, is like the whole also, movie could be taking place in Fernwood. But maybe that's <laughs> a, it should be. Maybe it, this is also another staple of Giallo because 
was, you know, uh, we talked about the various men in the these head. movies. Yeah, you the know. George Hilton. Yeah, is, how, is, yeah. He's talk, like the George Hilton character. How in uh, Dress to Kill, all of the men in that universe look like they're in soap operas. They all yeah, look yeah. like the Classic different versions of the same job. man. No, no, they all, it's very funny in Dress to Kill that Brian De Palma's version of a, of a sexy man, either the museum guy or Angie Dickinson's husband, is all a, a very much a, a 1979 gentleman quarterly. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, there's another aspect. Okay, so why was I almost turned off while appreciating Alice Sweet Alice, where I was invigorated by Deep Red? And I think that there is a reason here. As rough and as violent as the scenes in Alice Sweet Alice are, the murder sequences in Deep Red are, are more bloody, and they're more graphic, and they're more even grotesque. But... They're sexy. There's a sexy quality to the hellacious murders in uh, Deep Red because Dario Argento finds cinematic violence sexy. And there's that almost neon buzz of sexuality running through it that makes it a fetishistic object. The boiling the woman alive in the bathtub being, I think, the main example of that. The, yeah. ma- the main component, along with Marissa Mel's yeah. axe murder. Hatchet murder, I guess. Um, Meat cleaver murder is what it looks like. Uh, um, even calling the Dario Argento murders, but we'll keep it to deep red. Even calling them sadistic, using that word, which they are sadistic. That's one of the things I like about, I, I, I like sadistic cinema. And one of the things I like about Argento is he's absolutely, is coming from a sadistic place. But just even calling it sadistic is to add the sexual element of that I am getting turned on by extreme violence towards this other person. Alice Sweet Alice violence is not sadistic. It is horrifying. Terrifying. It's not fun. It wasn't fun when I was a kid watching it. It was really disturbing. And it's still disturbing to this day. There's not, there is not the neon buzz of fun and sexuality and cinema even going on during it. And because you have child murder too, there's, there's maybe, maybe that's one of the things that makes it unique, but also why people would not feel good watching it or recommending it, Mm -hmm. you know, because I agree with you. I Mm -hmm. think that the murders until you're in the stairs, Mm -hmm. That one's fun, and then you know Niles McMaster when the dad's getting rolled. Well, I'm, not, I'm saying I'm I'm saying when the father is attacked, that's an amazing scene. It's not fun, but the ending. No, the like, ending is great. The if, ending if is every great. every death, the ending is the only one that feels like it's uh, you know deep red adjacent. But mm-hmm. I agree with them. You watch those scenes and you want to stand up and applaud, and you your heart's raised, and you're like, wow, I've never seen anything like it, that. And this, you're like legitimately horrified that it, a child. Is and, but but truthfully though, I actually think. The murder of the dad is the best scene in the movie, but it's not fun to watch, but it's the best thing in the movie when he's holding the cross in his mouth. I mean, as bad as everything has been, and it's pretty fucking bad. And then even the whole agonizing aspect of rolling him over to the end to throw him off the building. He's semi-conscious. And he's putting it together. (laughs) Then he gets the the cross in his mouth. She's got to get the cross off and she can't get get his mouth open. And then she just takes her shoe off and beats his fucking teeth in with the heel of her shoe. My God. Yeah, it's brutal. Before pushing him off. Yeah. Yeah. And then the best shot in the movie when he lands. when he lands. It's fantastic. Which I remember, which I had forgotten how impressed I was with that, that shot when I was a kid until I saw it again. Well, like, oh, wow. That shows that. what a good director Alfred Soule is because yeah. he makes such great use of, in that single angle, that single take, 
you know, selling the gag of the body falling and hitting and then having the actor roll into the close-up. It's a great gag. Okay, and I'm going to say something that uh, uh, I haven't said up until now, but since we haven't revealed the killer on this one, let's not reveal the killer on this one. Okay. Okay. That's part. I think that is part of the fun of that movie. We sure. won't reveal it. And I could actually talk about that character a lot because there's a lot to talk about that character. But let's not on this one. You know, another issue is that, you know, in a movie like Dress to Kill, mm-hmm. there's an entry point for me as, mm-hmm. uh, as Lisa's a young mm-hmm. male watching the movie. I am Keith Gordon. Yeah. Like I can transplant myself into, into that character and view the movie through his eyes and his struggle. And I'm with the movie because of that. Mm. In this film, really the only person that I can even hopefully identify with safely is that poor fat girl who's just eating <laughs> to, to get through the, the suffer- Angela, Angela. Who's suffering Angela. through this family. Well, just- again, that just shows how well drawn this movie is. I actually know Angela's name. Yeah. All right. <laughs> to me, I'm like, at best, I want to be Angela in this movie. And that's not really something somebody I want to be. <laughs> it's a- yeah, I also think that also part of the thing that I was actually confused about when I saw it, when it first came out is I didn't think it was a mystery at first. I thought, well, no, obviously Alice is doing it. Yeah. Right. It's almost in the, t- in the title, in the title. But yeah. this movie had a different title originally, didn't it? Well, yeah, no, it, well, the, when say- I saw it, it, it was originally called communion. Then when it was after Brooke, after Brooke Shields did pretty baby, then it was released as Alice, sweet Alice pushing the Brooke Shields, uh, connection. And then it was released even a third time as Holy Terror. Mm. Now, it was actually, before the Alice Sweet Alice release, it was actually reviewed, Bruce Williamson reviewed it in Playboy under Communion. But by the time, deep into its re-release, uh, when Cinema Fantastique reviewed it, it reviewed it under Holy Terror. So really, the movie's largely about co- the communion itself and that she can never receive communion. Mm-hmm. She can never take in the body of Christ, mm-hmm. which is like the the thing that she is like practically killing over. Oh, by the way, we haven't even talked about <laughs> the totally grotesque moment. When Paula Shepard tries to get in the communion line <laughs> and get the communion that Brooke Shields is supposed to get, and she sticks out her tongue, and she basically has a tongue the size of fucking uh, Gene Simmons. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's 19, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, most 19 year olds don't have the uh, tongue the size of Gene Simmons. It's, it's a bit of a lizard tongue. It's impressive. I got to call out uh, uh, Linda Miller, the mother's yeah. uh, wardrobe in the movie. Oh, God. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her every wardrobe change is like, I, I, like I love watching uh, wardrobe in movies and, uh, mm-hmm. and she has great wardrobe changes. Yeah. Well, the one that knocked me out is uh, uh, she's hanging out for like almost like a 15 minute segment of, of the film. And when she shows up, she's got black capri pants on and a, 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 a black turtleneck and her hair is in a Jackie O kind of uh, flip on both sides. And I've heard, Hey, she's dressed like Laura Petrie. It's got a Laura Petrie outfit on, you know, Dick Van Dyke's wife from the show. Um, but then the more it goes like, no, no, that's not a Laura Petrie outfit. She's dressed like Modesty Blaze. Yeah. All right. That's a complete Modesty Blaze. That's exactly how Peter O'Donnell has him drawn. And then the fact that it goes on for 15 minutes of her just this regular housewife just looking cool and badass like Modesty Blaze is really is is very funny. Yeah, and with her beautiful angular features, you know, yeah. she's she's but the, great. But the point is, it's not some weird out of touch thing because we were both talking our mothers are of the same era in the 60s and i've got old photos of her hanging out at at family gatherings looking kind of like modesty blaze yeah and i've got (laughs) pictures of pants and black black turtlenecks i've got pictures of my mom when we used to live in canada and Mm -hmm. uh you know she'd be out there with like a turtleneck sweater and capri pants like that and Mm -hmm. kind of some cool cat eye glasses yeah yeah no exactly (laughs) exactly no no that was that was a that was a great outfit 
And I think that, you know, despite its flaws, it is one of those movies that it's still, it's better than you expect it to be. Yeah. It's definitely that. You know, you're like, oh, this will be some slasher film, some cheap thing. You're like, oh, this is exceptionally well made. No, I think those flaws stop it from actually entering Texas Chainsaw Massacre Halloween brood rabbit category. But it's just, it's just slightly underneath and, and probably has better production design than the, the uh, and even costume design than the, all the other ones put together. That's all incredible. Well, maybe not, that's probably a maybe personal not, taste. Maybe not, not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the but others, okay. yeah. The I others, agree. yeah. Okay, this is from uh, a double issue, issue 58 and 59 of the Movie Tone News, which is out of uh, the Seattle Film Society. And it is a fucking rave for Alice Sweet Alice, under its title, uh, Communion. Who's the uh, reviewer? Uh, Pierre Greenfield, who, uh, after Kathleen Murphy and Richard Jameson, I think is like their big guy. he's one of the head guys there. I don't know anything about Alfred Soule beyond the fact that he has described himself as a good Catholic boy and barely a single name on either side of the camera in this extraordinary film of his was familiar to me. But I suspect we'll hear a good deal more of Soule in the future. Communion is a classy chiller on a low budget and a celebration of cinema at its noiriest. The filmmaker Soul most obviously seeks comparison with is that other good Catholic boy named Alfred. But there are several other big names exercising a powerful influence too. The main title comes up over a Bunwellian image of an angelic little girl holding a large cross, which a deaf pullback reveals is actually a huge phallic knife. An amazingly fat pervert living in grotesque squalor despite possessing wealth uh, could have provided a dandy part for Victor Buono and one of his Robert Aldrich further gross out gothic excursions. A child under suspicion of murder undergoes exorcist-style humiliations at the hands of various uncaring adults representing the authorities. Above all, rogues don't look now as heftily evoked via the presence of a face-unseen killer in a PVC raincoat, yellow this time. The killer wears a face mask, which could be an allusion to any number of movies. The Fan of the Opera, House of Wax, or even Duffy or Cool Breeze. Hitchcock looms over all these things, though. There is marital bickering filmed through rain-swept car windscreened a la Marnie. There's an agonizingly slow torn curtain death. There's a gruff but polite but terrifying wrong man police detective. There's an I confess priest and a faintly Miss Danvers-like housekeeper fixated on the memory of a dead female, in this case, her own daughter, whose place the child at the center of the movie symbolically takes, just as the second Miss De Winter did in Rebecca. Wow, really drawing those Hitchcock yeah. comparisons. And churchgoers as impotent in the face of sudden crime as those kidnap witnesses in Family Plot. Above all, the surprise which most filmgoers anticipate will come at the end comes instead a lot earlier, as in Vertigo, so that the suspense is based on a knowing what's what when no one in the actual movie does. And then there are the psycho references, mainly to do with people getting stabbed, (laughs) notably on a staircase. These are the most obvious parallels. Uh, just in case we haven't got the reference, Soul, whose movie takes place in 1961, the year after Psycho came out, shows us a poster advertising the film, clearly still packing them in in Patterson, New Jersey's Picture Palaces. <laughs> <laughs> 
Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Roger, and I'd like to take a break to tell you about a new book I've just read, written by my friend and co-host Quentin Tarantino. I'm talking about Cinema Speculation, a milestone book of film criticism that's sure to be placed on the curriculum of every film school, or on the bookshelves of self-educated cinema enthusiasts everywhere. Equal parts insightful criticism, autobiographic remembrance, insightful biography, historical record, cultural observation, investigative speculation, and thematic analysis, Quentin has crafted a unique fusion of forms that seems both obvious and rare. Landmark books like this don't happen with great frequency, and there's a reason. There are very few instances of filmmakers with the wheelhouse of talents that Quentin has to offer to the tome. So let's crack the cover, shall we? Firstly, the book is gorgeous and has a sophisticated cover graphic design of deep orange and a black and white still of Sam Peckinpah and Steve McQueen kneeling in discussion on the set of The Getaway, next to a cryptic element that could almost be missed. Katie's personal box. And is that a gun in Steve McQueen's hand? A union crew mulls in the background next to HMI lights and C-stands, waiting like soldiers to be called to action. If one photograph could capture the zeitgeist of a book, it would be this one. The Elder Master and his samurai knight-errand, the embodiment of his internal thoughts, discussions, ideals, and fears, brought to full expression in a cat-like individual, with a gun. Katie is nowhere to be seen, but her own box is close, and definitely protected. It seems to be labeled on all sides, and she will not be kneeling on one knee like these two men, for she has her own box, and it's personal. This image can be fallen into as if by Stendhal syndrome, and the book is no less transfixing a journey as the heroes, villains, legends, myths, and metaphors that define our culture and that define Quentin Tarantino, the filmmaker, the film critic, the film fan, and the boy discovering film. He, we find in the deep orange field occupying the top half of the cover. Orange is no mistake. It's not just a cool, academic-looking color. It represents enlightenment and quest for understanding. Some might call it Buddhism, some might call it existentialism, but Quentin calls it cinema speculation. And by speculating on the infinite possibilities during the filmmaking process, Quentin explores the various permutations of reality that come together to create a work of cinematic art during peak cinema. Quentin uses his vast knowledge of the industry, the careers, the inspirations, and the temperaments of the Hollywood players of his youth to imagine a kaleidoscope of possible movie permutations and what-if scenarios that results. But this book is more than that. The first chapter is titled Little Q Watching Big Movies. So from page one, this is an autobiography, a descent into cinema, sometimes a confession, sometimes a realization, sometimes an actualization, but always an exploration. Because soon, as the chapter titles become the titles of films, we find ourselves the ones watching the big movies through Quentin's eyes. What's a big movie? Well, it's a big gesture. Because these films came at the biggest time in film history, when the victors of the rudder of culture were proving themselves and their ideas. So this is how one becomes Quentin Tarantino. It's culture which creates culture, an Ouroboros of creation, a wheel of visual storytelling, the master, the samurai, 
in the middle of the war to defend culture, the war to defend Katie's personal box. It's an exciting read, with chapters either consumed as individual essays or as an episodic historical analysis. Quentin has been writing this book for years, and occasionally he would read me a concept, a twist, or a perspective I hadn't anticipated from him. And now, to see all these thoughts all pulled together, it's taken a shape that finally allows me to see and understand from a true vantage at a distance. Well done, Quentin. Awesome. Cinema Speculation by Quentin Tarantino hits shelves November 1st. Get your copy wherever books are sold. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Hey, Roger. Hey, Eli. I'm so glad you guys didn't spoil Alice, Sweet Alice in your discussion. I didn't see it coming. At first, I was like, uh, they revealed the killer way too soon. Like, uh, like I still have like X amount of time left. Yeah. Okay, no, because. Yeah, then you're in kind no, of a different movie all of a sudden. Because the villain is my favorite villain of, yeah. this, of this episode. Mm-hmm. This uh-huh. is my favorite villain of the episode. I Great. think it's an awesome crazy villain so well the character becomes a character once it's revealed <laughs> yes but you can look back and you can see little tiny breadcrumbs absolutely of absolutely. why it's that person yeah. which i think is so great i agree this movie definitely feels the most giallo to me out of the four um i wonder if it's because of the religious influences also i mean all the movies have taken place so far back east i'm guessing new york new, new york, jersey yeah. and then new jersey so it's like the italian influence is especially strong in new jersey so I'm assuming that's maybe why it felt the most giallo to me out of the four. Stronger than in Spokane. Yeah. We don't have a split personality, but we do have sisters. And the doll is a split personality doll with yeah, a yeah. split face. Yep. Yeah. So we have that split personality. And you're right. The sisters almost perform the function like in sisters. Yeah. All right. Of split personalities. Yeah. You're, she was 19 when uh, she played Alice. And the illusion was only broken for me in the scene where she's finally sent away to the institution and she stands up and she's wearing these like jean capris. And I was like, okay, that's not a little kid. That's a woman. Mm-hmm. Like that was, and when she's in her dress, she totally looks like a little kid. Mm-hmm. Eli, you said it really well. Alice never gets communion. Even in the end, mm-hmm. the father just skips over her. I, that was like so funny to me. I actually burst out laughing because it's the one time she finally thinks she's going to get communion from yeah. her father or from the priest. From the father. From the father. And she doesn't. Like, okay, why is Alice um, not getting communion and not getting her, like, why is the Why doesn't fa- she get to wear a tiara? Why doesn't, why doesn't she, she get, get anything? Why do they treat Alice so bad? And- yeah, why? I mean, like, her sister gets the cross. And the other one gets, like, a new plate of food every five minutes. Yeah. Because she's, like, burning dolls in the basement doing (laughs) witchcraft. I mean, she's nuts. But but, but you actually... There's nothing nuts about witchcraft. You actually said something. I don't know if you meant to say it, but it's hiding out in the subtextual forest of Alice Sweet Alice that maybe one or or even both of these daughters could be the daughter of the priest. Yes, I was thinking that when I was uh, watching it, because there, you're talking. in my opinion, there's Now you're in Roger Avery territory, Quentin. There is a lot. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, it's all you're, right. You're there, reading no, the subtext. It, it really well, well, what, I don't think it's actually subtext that she once dated the father before no, he no, became a priest. That's in the text, No, I, I think, think she's actually currently dating the father because her husband's gone. 
yeah. with his new family. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Mm-hmm. She's with the priest, and the priest even asks the husband, "Oh, are you staying long?" Like he wants to know, like, get out of here. I gotta like get home to my woman. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's it's a you know it's it's like the way uh, 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 a grown child serves the wife or husband relationship to its mom if they live yes. together as a, so it, you know it's a de facto well the fact that marriage relationship I mean, is what he's saying that as a nation we've lost our father and we're replacing him with a uh, kind of alternate it's, she never gets the love from her father that's yeah. what it is but you know what actually i think alice no, no, does actually, actually think the father goes out of his goes her dad her, her dad, dad her dad yeah yeah because her what i loved about this movie also is that alice's parents believe her yeah that's like one thing you don't always see in horror films. Usually it's like, oh yeah, my weird daughter who's doing witchcraft in the basement, burning up dolls and like, I don't know, putting cockroaches on that fat pedophile who is my landlord. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's crazy. No, the mother believes her and her dad believes her. Her dad actually comes home and investigates on her behalf and is her advocate. But you get the sense when it's like, oh, good thing he arrived on time for the funeral, that this guy's never there. And you don't really know why he left the mother yeah, well, or what that was, but you get the sense this no, guy's I, not okay, wait, wait, hold on. I don't know about that. Like, I, I don't know if I agree with that reading because I, one of the things I actually thought was really, really kind of cool was uh, when the father shows up, you expect there to be all this strum and drama like you always see in a movie of, oh, the the, the divorced couple fighting and pissing with each other like they are in uh, the flashback and Happy Birthday to Me. But that's actually not the case. Well, look, the, the, you know, the marriage ended. He got married again to another woman. But there still is this compassion. Yeah. For there is this, there actually is still a love and a compassion for each other, but you know, but they need each other because of the Karen, Karen's death. That's just not what you see normally in movies. No, I think it's a great relationship, mm-hmm. but I, but you do get the sense. I was just saying that when he arrives and the aunt makes some comment like, "Oh, nice of him to make it." No, and then and then the mother shuts her the fuck down when the aunt does that. You're, you're just out. being a biddy. You're just being the kind of harsh yeah. biddy. Well, in my gala brain of fanciful whatever, in my opinion, I think, okay, Alice is the dad's daughter. Karen is the priest's daughter. Mm. They Mm. broke up because of the affair. He's showing up just as a cordial thing. I'm here for you. It's it's not his daughter. It's why they broke up their marriage, probably. They still love each other. They still make love, even when he comes home. Mm -hmm. They still love each other. But his wife has done him a disservice and has cheated on him. And so he's left in poor Alice is the one that's left behind. So that's how I would read it. I think there's a little rewriting going on in there. All right. In my, in yeah, my yeah, yeah, yeah. fantasy land. Yeah. Uh, but not bad. I'm doing, no, not bad. No, no, <laughs> not bad at all. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. And I, 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 tend, look, I do tend to think it's a situation where I think Linda Miller had a relationship with Father Tom before he became Father Tom. And there might have been a hanky panky with one of the daughters. I do. Uh, I, I do think that maybe Karen is Father Tom's daughter. And then just one line I loved in this movie: "Children pay for the sins of their parents," because it's all about apparently well, Alice. Is, well, apparently Alice though was had out of wedlock, or mm-hmm. someone yeah. was had out of mm-hmm. wedlock, and so it was just so the, Alice would be. Yeah, she's, Alice, yeah, would be the she's one. older. Unless they got divorced and then Father Tom had yeah, an affair. Yeah, it could have happened. Anyway, could have happened. I, I love that line though that she's getting <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah. She's getting back at people because of yeah. that. So I loved it. 
I had a fun time watching it. My VHS, which is alpha video, I would not recommend getting it because it needs its own paperweight. It feels like it's going to fly away. Hold it on the table. Um, Was 19. It's it's a birthday balloon. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Off it goes. Um, This alpha video was $19.99. I watched on Amazon. It was a beautiful transfer. But if you can get that Arrow video Blu-ray, I'd recommend it. Now, I would recommend an Arrow video Blu-ray for Alice Wheel. Yeah. Unless you can get the original VCI version, because remember, porno company VCI is the one that yeah. actually came out with Alice Wheel Alice first, and that will be a, a, a full-on uh, uh, SP transfer. Hi. Hi, Virginia. Hi. Poor Virginia. Just when the rich, young snobs at Crawford High condescended to come to her birthday party... They're all being murdered in the most bizarre ways imaginable. Happy birthday to me. Pray you're not invited. Rated R, now playing at a theater near you. Happy birthday to me with co-hit Alice Sweet Alice. We'll be playing Thursday, October 27th and Friday, October 28th at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. Visit thenewbev.com for tickets and more information. The New Beverly Cinema, always on film. Always on film. Okay, and we're back. And just to let everybody know, in in honor of our last movie, Happy Birthday to Me, and in honor of my birthday that was yesterday... We've just had some ice cream cake and some other chocolate kind of cake. Yeah, from Carvel's. Uh, Carvel and Sweet Lady Jane's, all right, that all had on it, happy birthday to me. And we're all vibrating from, basically, we just took a bunch of reds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've been freebasing in the corner of your kitchen for I literally feel the while. need to smoke a blunt, all right, to counteract the birthday cake. Right. <laughs> so this is going to be a, a very animated uh, segment, right? <laughs> But then, like in like fifteen minutes from now, start yawning, yeah. go to sleep. Uh, yeah, we, like, we, we, okay. We, so let's talk about how you did me. The film by Jelly Thompson, uh, directed by uh, Jelly Thompson, and starring uh, Melissa Sue Anderson is Virginia. Uh, uh, Glenn Ford's in it also. And then, <laughs> and then we'll sugar crash, and then we won't even bother finishing the sentence. <laughs> <of the episode. laughs> we just out. turn it off at a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> so now our fourth film that I feel uh, fits into the. Jallo mode is uh, one of my favorite directors. Jay Lee Thompson is his Canadian made film. Happy birthday to me starring uh, Melissa Sue Anderson, Glenn Ford, Lawrence Dane, and a whole bunch of other people. Um, Now, when the film came out, came out during the time of the slasher films and it was set up to be a slasher and it is, it, it still qualifies completely as a slasher. But slashers and jallos are not the same. And the fact that this movie manages to completely walk the line between both of them actually is an achievement, I think. What do you think? Yeah, it's funny because I never put it under the jello microscope until you mentioned it because everyone remembers the iconic shish kebab poster. It's just one of the great images of early 80s horror posters. And Mm -hmm. it came out during the slasher boom. At the height of it, where they were all being taken for granted. And also all the major holidays, except Thanksgiving, were taken. So they were like, well, what about birthday? Like a a calendar, it's sort of, it's not really a holiday horror, but it's like a calendar event horror of a birthday. Um, And they really sell it like you're going to go see Friday the 13th or one of these films. Um, but it very much does because it really, it's got sort of the guessing game of who the killer is, but mm-hmm. not like My Bloody Valentine or The Prowler. No. Each kill, No, like a Jallo. Uh, like a Jallo. 
But then it's, wait, wait. each each character has one red herring scene yes. where they get to act like a crazy person. <laughs> yes, there's a red herring scene. Then they're killed. and I've got a knife. And the <laughs> and connection like is that it. because you know John Saxon starred in Tenebrae and yeah. you know, much. John Saxton is one of the writers. I don't know if that counts as a Jello connection. <laughs> We're making it though. But there is the great thing. Of, well, you've had as much ice cream cake as I've had. It is a connection. It is a connection. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there's a the great thing of like the people that look up and see the killer go, oh, it's you. Oh, what, my, what, what, my, get, one of my favorite cliches in movies when they don't show who the killer is, just their their lower torso and their shoes walking in there, and the and the you know that they're coming in as the killer, and they're like, oh wow, it's you, great to see you. What's with that knife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there's like fifteen. Oh, it's you. Also, because the, it's great, a, the great great John Saxton dialogue. Great song. Oh, it's you. Yeah, but because there's a whole bunch of kids that are at a high school, even though they look like they're twenty seven. And they all look like they go to college. It's this private school. Mm-hmm. And there's, you just know there's going to be a high body count. The, the weird thing is it's, it's not like got the Friday the 13th kind of sex. It's not like a body yeah, yeah. horror film. But they, there's a lot of couple swapping. Like everyone keeps switching partners. Okay, 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 before, okay, before we get well, into it the 80s. Major, it's 1981. No, but yeah. he, that's a good point. I want to bring it up when it has more of a context. So let me read the back of the box. Sure. Okay. Welcome to Upscale Crawford Academy, where everybody especially new student Ginny, Melissa Sue Anderson of Little House on the Prairie, wants to be part of the school's most popular clique, the Crawford Top Ten. But now, somebody has begun butchering the group's members. Could a deadly accident from Ginny's past be connected to the brutal killings? And as her 18th birthday approaches, will Ginny be the guest of honor at the most horrific party of all? Matt Craven from Disturbia, Lawrence Dane of Scanners, and a Hollywood legend Glenn Ford of Blackboard Jungle, 310 to Yuma, co-star in this twisted slasher shocker from Oscar-nominated director J. Lee Thompson in 1961's Guns of the Navarone, that features, as its infamous poster promised, six of the most bizarre murders you will ever see. RCA Columbia... Home video. We took this out of the H in the horror section. Well, what I love about Happy Birthday to me, at first, it's a longish movie. Mm-hmm. It runs about an hour, 50 minutes. So your mm-hmm. basic slashers kind of clock in around 90 or 100. So, but, so they really spend a lot of time going into Melissa Sue Anderson's backstory. And there's this very disturbing brain surgery scene. There's kind yeah. of flashbacks. And accident been, scene. And yeah. accidents with a mother. And and Jay Lee Thompson, who we all love. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the Death Wish, there's so many films. But yeah. the movies just move. They just start off. There's no fat. They just, mm-hmm. every everyone's a suspect. Everything's a red herring. It feels like Torso or one of the more kind of college set yeah. Jallo films. But what's great about it, without giving anything away or getting to it, is the sort of resolution. It does follow Jallo. You're like, is it a slasher film? It's a Jallo. And then the ending is so batshit crazy. You're like, oh, it's a Jallo. Yeah. The whole film qualifies as a Jallo, but could also be called a slasher simultaneously. But the fact that the past trauma backstory is so ridiculously crazy, that's what officially puts it in the term of a jallo. And we've already had nothing but batshit crazy explanations of why the killer has killed on this on this quadruple feature that we had. This is still the craziest yeah, one. This is as crazy as Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Like when suddenly <laughs> the reveal happens, mm-hmm. and you're like, what? Well, Roger, what do you think of uh, Happy Birthday to Me? 
Well, I think Jaylee Thompson squeezes in all of his particular perversions into this one. Well, well, I think, <laughs> that's well, like, well, uh, he, well, he does. But that's again, uh, you're saying that as a compliment. No, I, I, I say that as a compliment. I, yeah. I say that as like as a as a guy who is, you know, mm-hmm. in many ways, a kind of studio journeyman mm-hmm. filmmaker, a guy who you know comes in and takes a job and delivers. And I think this is like his only quote unquote slasher yeah. film. Well, he's a well, giallo. Like well, he, well, you know, look, he made a mark for himself. Like doing thrillers, he was uh, uh, his movie, the the Yellow Balloon. Yeah, oh, for sure, the Yellow Tiger Balloon. Bay. Is amazing. Oh, you see, oh, you seen the Yellow Balloon? Oh, yeah, yeah, I have it on DVD. Oh, it's terrific. <clears throat> I have a foreign uh, yeah. version of so it on he, DVD. His idea at some point was he would like he wanted to be. Oh, uh, he would have been happy. To, oh, if I could be like a second tier Hitchcock, you know, and just doing those kind of thrillers. He he got waylaid. Well, all right, he by becomes the Navarone. He becomes an auteur because of his consistency mm-hmm. with squeezing in his. You know, particular. Well, I, no, I agree with you. I think one of the things that, one of the things that makes Jay Lee Thompson on a tour is he's one of cinema's lovable degenerates. Yes, mm-hmm. the fact that he finds really questionable relationships and really questionable sexuality, and the fact that he seems to be turned on by him, and then presents them in a way that's not condemnation against them and is actually accepting of them, is an Atar trait that follows from movie to movie to movie to movie. You can you can detect it. When you detect it in the film, you can say, oh my God, I am, I am actually now watching a J. Lee Thompson film. He's showing us a peek into himself. Yeah. You know, in the case of uh, a film I'm a big fan of, uh, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. Exactly. With the possible exception of Hotel New Hampshire. It's the only movie where there's a rooting interest in the incest to happen. Yeah. You know, now it's once removed because the guy is. Yeah, technically, uh, well, it, it, we're, we're okay to do this because technically I'm a different person. Yeah. It's, well, it's <laughs> the, the, there's this wonderful moment but through the whole movie. Michael Sarazid is saying, you know, is like insisting, no, I think I'm this guy. I'm this guy. I'm this guy, Peter Proud. Then he ends up meeting his adult daughter, Jennifer uh, O'Neill. And then at first he starts pushing her off when it looks like she wants to have an affair with him. Then he breaks down and has an affair with her and he falls in love with her. And then he's talking to like the buddy that who was explaining the whole plot to (laughs) through the whole film. So we understand what's going on. And he's been making this case that he is Peter Proud. And now he has to defend himself because he's fucking Peter Proud's daughter. (laughs) And then finally it all comes down to, okay, look. She may have been my daughter in another life, but she's not my daughter in this life. <laughs> and that's almost J. Lee Thompson talking out loud. <laughs> just like, okay, and just forget about his last movie, which is Kinjete, where like he just yeah, he, he burns down the whole house. Yeah. He, just before yeah. he goes out, he douses himself in gasoline, douses the film in gasoline, douses Charles Bronson in gasoline, and just sets it all afire. Yeah. All right, <laughs> and it and it and it's a beautiful, glorious pyre. All right, uh, it sure is. Okay. Now, where this falls into happy birthday to me, well, a couple of areas, but the most significant area, and even on an episode that has Dressed to Kill on it, my favorite relationship between a psychiatrist and his patient in the history of cinema is Melissa Sue Anderson and her doctor, Dave, <laughs> played by Glenn Ford. Who she never calls anything other than Dave! Yeah, okay, not <laughs> Dr. Bennings or whatever. No, it's just Dave. And they're related- Which in itself implies something. In Jay Lee Land. Yeah, in J- well, in Jay Lee Land. Well, you don't even need to be in Jay Lee Land to all of a sudden. I, I think even when the day the movie was released, I think people were like, 
What's kind of up between those well, two? The daughter comes or... home and she kisses her dad right on the lips. Yeah, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. So yeah. even with the father-daughter relationship, there's yeah. a little something. Well, she definitely on. has a thing for older men, that's for yeah. sure. But yeah. he also, they make him look sexy. He's not like a guy who's a Sigmund Freud. They're like, oh, it's Glenn Ford, but, you know, we're going to play this. Well, one, like, I, I love Glenn Ford in this movie. I think he's terrific in this film. But, but he's got the, his shirt unbuttoned. No, he's no, got, but the, he's dressed no, like but, Bob Guccione. No, you're 100% right. <laughs> He's not this older man, fatherly authority figure. They're trying to make Glenn Ford look as handsome as Glenn Ford can look at this age. There is a sexy quality to Glenn Ford with his white, his cool white shirts, his Italian cool white shirts with his cool black sweater on and everything. Yeah, and his gold chains and the bare chest. He's a swinging shrink. But also as she's, they do this really clever device in the movie that she had this experimental brain procedure that mm-hmm. part of her head was cut out, part of her brain. She had this traumatic accident mm-hmm. and she can't remember stuff, but the, her memory is starting to come back to her. Mm-hmm. So they really make you wonder as these murders are happening, is she doing it as she's remembering things mm-hmm. or is she going to solve the identity of the killer? Like they're sort of leading you into thinking that she's going to solve the puzzle. But of course, it well, just we can't, well, we can't give, well, gets insane. It's a movie playing with a, tel- a zillion amount of red herrings, so you're, it's your job to deduce who amongst this list of suspects is the killer. Then the film seemingly tells you who the killer is about midway through, and you're not prepared for the answer. And then it starts going on a whole other track than it's been going only like a Jallo to jump the track a third time. Yeah. <laughs> There's two jump the track moments in the movie. It's still fun, but there's usually there's like one batshit crazy thing in a jail. We're like, well, okay, all right. I guess that's what wrapped it up. But the deaths were so fun, I don't care. They do it twice in this, mm-hmm. where you're just like, and and I I don't want to spoil it, but you almost have to like spoil it a little bit. But like in the killer's reveal, you think is the killer's reveal, but it's not the killer's reveal. Mm-hmm. But you've been seeing it, and you're just like, wait, what? Huh? And how can like, this not? How, how could no one have noticed? Uh-huh. How could that actually have been practically pulled off and mm-hmm. barely set up at any point in the movie and then executed? It's so outlandish and preposterous, but that's also but what also gives inter- the movie its fucking charm. It's entertaining. It, it, it's it entertaining all, as it hell. All, no, I don't buy you don't, it. You don't get mad at it. You're mm-hmm. just like, wow. Oh, that's fucking bullshit. No, you don't say that. No, it's fun. And that's what no, he it does. actually makes it actually makes the movie. And then the birthday party <laughs> at the end with all the dead bodies and her, you know, singing the singing of happy birthday to me. It's sort of the moment you've been waiting for. And they tell you on the poster that mm-hmm. you'll see the murders like Greg won't be able to Steve won't ride his bike anymore. <laughs> Greg won't lift weights anymore. Like the poster lists out the ways yeah. uh-huh. they're going to kill you. They, they're like, not only you see this many people die, this is how we're going to kill them. There's a guy with a shish kebab and there's going to be a birthday party. And it really delivers okay. on all of it. Okay. Okay, okay. And then at the top of the batshit crazy things is the mask technology that would put oh, yeah. Mission Impossible to shame. That, to me, that was the Roger Rabbit moment that I was speaking of. The, the you know, but wait, it's me. And then you pull off a mask. Yeah. Okay, but, okay, but I'm the villain. But I kind of loved it. I really did. Well, I, he I, does I, it really well. I, they he does put, it in a really like movie. It's a movie. And so it's yeah. it's as real well, as the shish kebab scene. that whole sequence actually does work. That yeah. whole birthday party does work. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. It's just, but yeah, the 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 mask reveal, it just couldn't. And and the way they sort of set it up with one character earlier, mm-hmm. but yeah. they're like, 
His hobby is taxidermy, but he also makes fake human heads really well. Like mm-hmm. a makeup effects guy. Because yeah. no one would have of- known what a makeup effects artist was in 1980 when they shot it. Yeah. So they were like, oh, taxidermy. Yeah. That's just me do heads and stuff. Yeah. So he yeah, they've, got, a, they've got like a raccoon or something there to. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the head, <laughs> okay. which is the actress sticking <laughs> yeah. her head through the yeah, table. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you're yeah. like, so they pull the thing off and you're like, they just found their friend's severed head. But then they're like, oh, wait a minute. That's a really good mask. The yeah, guy no, made. It's, my, pull- it's my hobby. And he pulls the eyeball out. And you're <laughs> mm-hmm. like, OK, that's what that guy does. Now, OK, but right up there in Jallo land with the ridiculousness of the reveal of the killer and then the crazy story that is backed up uh, by why they're doing all these these murders is, again, straight out of an Italian movie. The hysterical past traumatic incident that put Melissa Sue Anderson uh, in the hospital uh, involving her mother. Mm -hmm. That whole scene is one of the best scenes that we saw. All right. It's so over the top. It seems like a weird, bad dubbing of one of those Italian crazy sequences. That's what's so great about her is that she's so over the top. And it's like, mom, it's like, I invited them all and none of them showed up to the party and they should. And she's like, we're going to bring you over to their party. It's like, mommy, don't baby. That no one shows up to her birthday party that she's traumatized or that she's sort of seemingly the new girl, but no one remembers her from that back then. Yeah, but even here, she had that terrible Well, actually, frankly, when the killer explains how it happened, you, you can go back and you oh well no it's all happening because the killer indoctrinated her into the group when, when you go backwards and think about it there's also some amazing things where it's like high school and this private school and this elite they're so rich and they're so elite that they like own the town and they're like hanging out in a local bar and getting beers and putting mice in well, it's, like, it's, canada, it's canada that's a, and that's a canadian joke i think look, <laughs> if she's turning 18 it's obviously a high school but it's like an academy that runs like a college because to me the kids just absolutely remind me of the kids from St. Elmo's Fire. Even though, even in that tavern that they hang out with might as well be the St. Elmo's Fire Tavern. But it's, and the cars that they drive and the scarves that they wear. But it's also <laughs> some of the counselors from Meatballs. So it's like the counselors yeah, yeah, from yeah. Meatballs went back to college and well, became, it, they were in a horror and, movie. And okay, okay, way, okay, that's just the Canadian aspect. Well, no, no, but <laughs> no, actually it's more than just the Canadian aspect. Uh, Andre Link and John Dunning, who uh, produced this mm-hmm. movie, produced Meatballs. Yeah. No, it's they made, in fact, they made Meatballs uh, well, in 79. Well, yeah, well, well Matt Craven, who's the most recognizable of the Crawford 10, is, yeah. in, is, is the most recognizable guy other than Bill Murray in Meatballs. I mean, you mentioned that this is a <laughs> Canadian Long. film, and this is like really a Canadian film because mm-hmm. it's produced by these two guys, Andre Link and John Dunning, mm-hmm. yeah. who uh, early on, they were the ones who made Shivers with Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those guys and Ivan Reitman and Jean-Claude yep. Lord, you know, are the Austra- are the, are the uh, uh, Canadian guys that did horror genre movies, that New World. And, and it was it was more than just that they were Canadian guys doing horror. They were Canadian guys who, for the first time, were taking government money for the arts mm-hmm. and using them to make- To make slasher To make yeah. Shivers. Oh, and, or Rabbit. And right? Rabbit. The yeah. Clown Murders. And My Bloody Valentine, the same year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so these guys- Guys were out there, and it was an outrage in Canada. They're like, "How dare you take public monies?" How? Mm-hmm. Da- in fact, they were saying that about me as well on, yeah, yeah. on my film. But then but those were the movies that actually those were those the, the movies, movies that were making money. money. Yeah, those are the movies that made money for telefilm, and these were the guys who really did it. I mean, these were almost more than any other. It's a really, it's a really enjoyable collection of these type of horror movie cliches that done in just the right spirit with a very like energetic cast and in, in, in a quick entertaining way that just, 
keeps it up. It, it, it keeps it keeps the juggling balls flowing. Well, you know, they'll kill someone. And then as soon as they're dead, like one other character shows up. It's like, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I got delayed at the library. They're like, to yeah, make yeah, them yeah. seem uh, like a suspect. Right. They keep doing that. But the deaths are inventive. You know, you have the motocross guy when that crazy motocross scene mm-hmm. where they're going nuts. And then he gets like pulled into the bike with his crazy Harry Potter scarf that every, mm-hmm. everyone, he wears like a 10 foot scarf while he's repairing his it's motorcycle. Like the, it's a school yeah. scarf. I think yeah. everybody yeah. has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah it's is, like, okay, he's, he's like destined to die like Isadora Duncan. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you have the other guy lifting the weights yeah. who, you know, somehow can't lower that's them. A, that's the best murder. And then, Although, you know, the weight. Probably just drop him behind you or. Well, he thinks she's gonna help him out and he's like, help me help me and then you know the killer takes the plate it's not funny man <laughs> but the ki- but that, funny. But it really works because like jackass like, quit, quit messing around man it might not have been a 25 pound weight oh it's it was, you even if that's a prop weight they drop the plate on the guy's balls when he's wearing those thin yeah. 80s nylon yeah. Yeah. jogging shorts. Dr. Yeah, Dr. J, one ball hanging yeah, out. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. That just looked like a painful... I don't and pour, he's semi-flaccid, it looks yeah, like. Yeah, who's yeah. the stunt guy who has to fucking take one for the team for that? But it just makes it... Su- it's such a great kill. Yeah. They're yeah. fun. And then, of course, the shish kebab. When you know the shish kebab's coming because you've seen the poster. Yeah. yeah, the fact that she's like, oh, let, let's like sit and next to the fire and I'll, let me make you a little she goes, shish kebab. Goes, you like a midnight snack, and then he comes back. He's like, "Here's some shish kebab." You're like, "What?" I, I had these in the I fridge. Just these, let me just roast up some shishki, and then he's like, mm. but, then she, "But we don't ask those questions because we've seen the poster, it, and, and we don't care. We just We're just waiting for the shish kebab to show up. Get the shish kebab in the mouth, and yeah. he dies. And then it's like you know, that's like your favorite guy, all right, from the group. Yeah. yeah, it's just enjoyable. And then the one guy. By the way, Rudy, who really looks like Rudy the Rabbit for me, are they just naming every Canadian character Rudy mm-hmm. in the late 70s? It must be. Yeah. When Rudy like appears in the library and then they're digging the skull up. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. a lot of really great kind of right up until the end. And then the father's coming home from the business trip and they got the rainstorm. It just looks like and feels like a classic horror movie. Basically, the great thing is that it, it's because it's such a high body count. You don't have to wait long for a kill. Mm-hmm. If you're watching a movie, you know, like within five minutes or seven minutes, someone's going to die. Well, also, I would also say that there is a symbiotic connection to the whole last sequence and the whole reveal to Happy Birthday to Me to the very first scream. Oh, yeah. The storyline of the very first scream follows kind of closely the backstory line yeah. of Happy Birthday yeah, to Me. Yeah, it does. You know, even to the point of where they have that the father is like kind of uh, tied up yeah. and been hidden through most of the movie. And they pretty much describe it in the same cockamamie way that the killer describes it in this. I mean, just the way he stages like major action and catastrophes of that, yeah, yeah. of the, the car on the bridge as the bridge is going up. And they can't get out of the car. And it's like, or they're hitting the reverse. And because mm-hmm. it's raining, the wheels are skidding. And then they fall in the water. And the mother has been pinned in the accident. Mm-hmm. And then she tells the daughter, like, she can't get out. And she's like, open the window mm-hmm. and swim. And she's like, no, mom, no. And she's like, hold your breath and swim as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. And then she opens it. And the, the car floods. The mother dies. And she lights. It's really, really but then, And then her and then getting a hit, tugboat. That her getting hit by that tugboat oh, in the horrible. head is so horrible. I, I cringed. And I yeah, mean, yeah. I felt it in a bad way. Yeah. 
But then you have the whole thing at the beginning when the kids are playing chicken with the rising bridge and everything. And that's really exciting. And, and <laughs> yeah, and the guy does the jump and totals his car. No, I like it. <laughs> you were great. The one guy with the girls that don't want to go on the jump does the jump. You go, okay. <laughs> Trash your firebird, douche. I mean, he, like, he like plants it on the radiator. Like, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he's like, fine. Yeah, and I'm okay and with And then it. he's mad that the other guy didn't jump, that the yeah. other guy chickened out. Yeah. Well, Not that he just trashed his firebird. <laughs> I also really love <laughs> Melissa Sue Anderson in this. Mm. Uh, like, and I love that she chose this yes, to I, do. Me yeah. too. Like while shooting Little House in the Prairie. To me, that was like, for me, it was akin to uh, um, uh, Jessica Beale coming mm. and doing Rules of Attraction on the heels mm. of Seventh Heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like she's sitting there doing, uh, you know, with Michael Landon all day long. Yeah, yeah. Like reading Bible, uh, mm. doing Bible study in yes. between uh, scenes. And, mm. you know, I'm sure she was going fucking crazy. And she's like, go to Canada. Uh, Jaylee Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, I get to play like, you know, this uh, yeah. traumatized, traumatized person. individual in a teenager movie uh, or a teenager place movie. modern day. Yeah. And she like you can tell she is the one who wants to be there. She's yes. excited to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's giving herself 100 percent to it, to this kind of the dementia of this character. No, she's, she's really, great. really good. at it. She did actually a, a really fun TV movie around the same time. I can't I don't I think it was just before maybe she did Happy Birthday to me or, or just afterwards. Uh a juvenile delinquent movie where she's like a young girl that's brought into a juvenile delinquent gang that's that uh, uh, causing uh, problems directed by Jack Starrett called The Survival of Dana. Mm-hmm. And Robert Carradine plays the leader of uh, the bad kids. Okay. And she's the good girl that's uh, indoc- indoctrinated into uh, mm-hmm. into the gang. You know what you said? It's why I cast Ryder Strong in Cabin Fever. He mm-hmm. was coming off Boy Meets World yeah, for exactly. years where he's like, Oh, I get to fuck and kill and swear. And you know and that smash. he's going to give himself 100% and went, to you. And the, <laughs> thou- and the kids that love, were fans of Melissa Sue Anderson, like fans of Ryder wow. Strong, they're shocked because yeah. they're like, what the fuck? They're, and that's what adds to the element of a horror movie. So any aspiring directors out there, if you're making a horror movie, get a Disney kid that's yeah. never done anything wrong and they'll go yeah, nuts. Find, find some Mouseketeer if they still have those. <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> That we found a connection with Happy Birthday to Me with one of your movies and one of your movies. (laughs) I love it. No, it's, I mean, when I, like, I want to make Thanksgiving and Happy Birthday to Me is, like, definitely up Mm. there in in inspiration. I mean, the thing is with Jallo, I I mean, obviously they are of a particular time, of a particular era, and people now try to sort of recreate that, which you can sort of never recapture, Mm -hmm. make them great because it's not authentic. Um, And I think what made the slasher movies great was the, the slasherness of like, you had to outdo all the other movies. You had to mm-hmm. get inventive with the deaths and they were taking a hook and trying mm-hmm. to kill a bunch of kids and make a cheap buck. And that's what made them what they are mm-hmm. in the same way. You can't go back. And the Jalos were definitely the precursor parallel to that. There were the, in the seventies in Italy, there were the comedy of sexy Italiana, these Italian sex comedies, yeah, yeah. which really become well. sounds the, really good. My well, it's one of his favorite genres. Yeah, <laughs> genre. like, when you say that, Italian. it sounds really sexy. No, he can talk about <laughs> Michelle Tarantini. And, and Massimo Tarantini. Yeah. Nando Cicero, Viva La Foca, a movie starring Bombolo, this kind of buffoonish mm-hmm. older man. And beautiful, beautiful young women, like, which were often Edwidge Fennec and Barbara Boucher and Anna Maria Rizzoli and Laura Del Santo. Laura Antonelli. Uh, yeah, yeah. Laura Antonelli. And if it's not yeah. that, Dude, it's Lando Brazuca. <laughs> yeah, Lando Brazuca, Alvaro Vitali was one, uh, Lino Bonfi. But those sort of became the template for American sex comedies. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is that really Bob Clark mm-hmm. is the one who sort of takes, you know, Bay of Blood and puts it into Black Christmas. Another Canadian. Mm-hmm. Canadian starts yeah. a slasher. And then Bob Clark really takes a lot of the elements. You know, it's almost like he mixes an Italian sex comedy with elements of like last picture show and 
and he creates Porky's, which mm-hmm. is yeah. launches, yeah. you know, the, the sex comedy craze. Buffo B.O. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it makes $181 like, million dollars yeah, in crazy. 1981. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Confused, confused everyone. <laughs> a masterpiece of a film. Yeah. We watched a yeah, beautiful yeah. 35 of it. It yeah. really holds up great photography. Just an oh, amazing. Great. Well, Bob Clark is an And then Bob Clark director. then pivots. Well, forget Turk 1A2, but he does. <laughs> pretend it doesn't exist. But then he, you know, he does A Christmas Story, which yeah. kind of reinvents the Christmas movie. I mean, mm-hmm. what a master. But it's interesting. Yeah, makes one of the best movies of all time. But if you think about Repeatable it, like, movies. what we love about Jallo films is that kind of going back is that, you know, the, the 50s American, the 60s American Westerns, you weren't allowed to show blood. But of mm-hmm. course, in Italy, they don't have that rule. So yeah, yeah. you have Sergio Corbucci and yeah. Leonardo creating on-screen violence. So suddenly, and then they put the electric guitar in there. Mm-hmm. So suddenly everything looks old fashioned in the US. So then the Americans, you have Peckinpah and everyone's trying to take from the Italians. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the, the thrillers and the crime films that, it's interesting that like Joe D'Amato well, yeah, called but, himself D'Amato because he wanted to sound like Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro. Like mm-hmm. there, there's such symbiosis in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. between Americans influencing Italians. And the, the, yeah, well, you have, okay, you have basically in Italy, French Connection and Dirty Harry being the most influential movies ever made. But then their ripoffs of those, just like we were talking about how the ripoffs of, of, of Psycho create their own genre, become the Jallos, that becomes the Policiers, the and becomes Policiers, a, you know, yeah. which leads in the, and, and with Godfather leads into the mafia movies. Yeah. The Fernando, the Fernando, Fernando De, Leo, De Leo, Enzo G. Castorelli, action, crime action films of Italy out of the 70s, which are amazing. Yeah, the Maurizio Merli films, the yeah, Policiers. Yeah. No, it's, it's really amazing. So if you love Jallo, but you go and you watch Once Upon a Time in the West, you're going to go, wait, Dario Argento? Like... The yeah. writers and, you know, it was the Sergio Salvati, the deep director of photography. Mm-hmm. A lot of the writers of the spaghetti westerns, when that genre sort of went on the decline, everybody moved over into Jallo films. Yeah. So if you love spaghetti westerns, you'll start seeing a lot of the same Well, names. Fernando DeLeo, the director I just mentioned, you know, didn't direct a spaghetti western, but he wrote a lot of great ones. He wrote Navajo Joe. Yeah, Not only that, he wrote the script that for a few dollars more is based on, they bought his script to get rid of him so they could take that and make that the second film. So it's it's amazing. You could really see that these guys, that they took sort of the violence of Corbucci and they put it into a spaghetti western and then all of the spaghetti western violence moves into the Jallo film films and the Jallo films, then you can see Scorsese and De Palma and everyone mm-hmm. in America going, whoa, what are these guys doing in Italy? Let's put that into Mean Streets. Let's put it in mm-hmm. High Mom. Like, yeah. And then, then all of a sudden, there it, it's really interesting, sort of the symbiosis of what the genre. So it's not just that we love these movies because they're fun and they have batshit crazy plot twists. Mm-hmm. As like film historians, you can see Oh my God, that was a spaghetti Western that became that writer. Whoa, Lucio Fulci did that for the apocalypse and he was a writer on this movie and mm-hmm. that influenced Scorsese and De Palma and these guys. And then it went and then that influenced Bob Clark, which influenced John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. So there's a real kind of back and forth relationship between American and Italian horror. And we're joined by Gala. Okay, guys, let me go through my American Giallo checklist for this movie. Okay. Crazy backstory. Check. Straight razor kill at the beginning. Check. Potential split personality slash sisters. Check. Back East? Potentially. Montreal's technically back East. That's it. That's it. It doubles occasionally for uh, Eastern cities. Check. (laughs) 
Church? Check. Mm-hmm. Awesome unique murders? Check. A hundred twists? Check. No police detective story? Check. Uh, black 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 leather gloves. Black leather gloves? Check. Even though every character in the movie wears black leather gloves. <laughs> but it's, when it comes down to the killer fucking, hand shots, they are definitely wearing black leather gloves. cold in Montreal. Yes, I <laughs> see, you don't I, have to be a killer to protect your hands from the frost. <laughs> if I had not just gotten my education from these three director masters mm-hmm. at this table right here, I would not have thought of this as a Giallo film. Mm-hmm. It felt the most Western out of the four movies that we watched. And by Western, you mean like... Uh, not, uh, not European. <laughs> she means not European. <laughs> I was originally going to say it felt the most American out of the four, but then I realized it's a Canadian film. So no, they're, they're trying to make it feel and, American. And also... Right? Can, a but, Canadian movie goes out of its way to make a well, movie feel American. Quentin Canada technically is in the Americas. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it felt, the most, it felt the most American to me, least Italian and like least like heritage drawn. And I think that's because it's filmed partially in Quebec. Yeah. We don't have the Italian influence of New York and New Jersey and like that regional area and those Yeah, actors, we have a French influence we have instead. We French influence yeah. instead. So a Clouseau me, influence maybe. Yeah, so to uh, me it felt the least, but that being said... The I mean, elements don't lie. The Inspector elements don't or lie. Henri George? Henri George. Okay. <laughs> the elements don't lie. This movie is so fun. Okay. First off, it opens with that straight razor kill where you think that girl's going to get killed three different times. Yeah. First with the dog, which I've never seen. A, like, what was that? Like, the leash is like whipping around her legs from a bulldog. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it was like a like a like a whip came mm-hmm. flying out of the dark and like wrapped around her legs. It's like the tree branch from Evil Dead level. Yeah, evil yeah, leash. yeah it was like the, the le- whoosh, whoosh, you know, that leash just wrapped around her legs. Yeah. yeah. And then she gets like strangled in her car. And then she's at like a train track and gets like stabbed with a straight razor. And it's <laughs> it's just, a three for one kill. It yeah. really yeah. is. And by the way, and by the way, that that bath, backseat murder has a lot of really good sexual terror. And yes. there's a whole, you know, they had a lot, which is a lot of kicking legs. Jay Lee, Jay Lee shoots yeah. the shit out of it. In fact, it's actually so Jay Lee that he would show the feet, her feet, her heels, her heels ripping, ripping, ripping up the ceiling ripping of the, 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 the fabric of the ceiling of the car. the fabric. Uh-huh. That was like cars are difficult to shoot then, in. To shoot a struggle like that in a car is difficult because you can only do so much with yeah, the yeah. camera and the angles, uh-huh. and it's night, so you have a shallow, mm-hmm. more shallow yeah. depth of field. You have restrictions on you, and he's really making you feel tight in there with them. And by the way, I'm a big fan of that actress. She's kind of a Canadian scream queen. That's uh, Leslie Donaldson who is the star of William Fruit's uh, Funeral Home, which I'm a big okay, fan yeah. of. But she's also in uh, uh, Curtains and a couple of other ones as well. Well, yeah. also she does the fake out where you think she's going to die and she fakes being oh. strangled to death. And then that's runs, the so brilliant like, move. So you're like, yeah. oh, oh, she's smart. That's, yeah. That's awesome. Well, well, she's smart until she gets five feet and stops and, stops. and starts looking <laughs> yeah, around. Then you're like, she's and then gets another idiot. five feet and stops and starts looking around. Got away. <laughs> you take my breath. But you know what I love about that, though, is because in Dress to Kill, we just talked about the dream sequence versus the dream sequence in Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how in mm-hmm. Carrie, it's one scene. And then how in Dress to Kill, it's two separate scenes. Yeah. Two, yeah, shots. Or, yeah. Or two scenes. And then in this, you assume, okay, she, there's like the scare at the beginning. And then the second one, she's for sure going to die. And then she gets away. So you think, okay. Maybe she lives. Maybe maybe this is our 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 main star. And then she dies. It's a great like twist reveal that we get. It's Mm -hmm. awesome. Jay Lee milks it. (laughs) (laughs) I milked it. I milked that scene. (laughs) You guys brought up the weight scene. Mm -hmm. I thought the irony in that was really cool because we know whoever's lifting the weights knows who the killer is. Mm -hmm. And then we as the audience know that who's watching him is the killer. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's like this like weird kind of irony going on. I don't really understand how they cleaned up all that blood 
No, I, I don't <laughs> buy it. Burns. But I tried. To I went with it, but okay, I didn't so, buy it. So uh-huh. I've heard that Jay Lee on the set of this had to be calmed down because he was blood crazy. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he would ask the the Canadian prop department mm-hmm. to bring him uh, like jugs of blood, mm-hmm. and that he would be splashing it around apparently and spraying it. And the prop guys would go to the producers, John Dunning and Andre Link, and say, "Hey, you got to tell Jay Lee to stop." Mm-hmm. he's making a mess. It's getting on the crew. It's getting on the camera. Blood is going everywhere. There's mm-hmm. too much blood. And they were trying to calm him down. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't calm down. Good problem that's to have. The right, yeah. That's the right, that's my boy, that's Jay Lee. Lee. Yeah. Well, love also, him. I love the amount of blood that came out from that guy when they put the weight on his crotch and then yeah. like the the bar falls on his neck and just blood sprays well, everywhere. His is definitely my favorite of the of the postmortem bodies. Yes. All right. I, you you kind of like, oh, there's the guy, there's the weight yeah, dude. Yeah, there's the weight dude. <laughs> there's the weight dude. And I even liked the <laughs> the weight dude. <laughs> there's a weight dude. Oh, I know that dude. Dude, you got it right in the boner. <laughs> in the weight nar- dude looks like Frankenstein. In the nard, dude. What a way to die. Got it in the nard. <laughs> And I even like the non-death fake outs, like the fake out of what's buried under the rose bushes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the fake out of the blood in the church. Mm -hmm. Like you think that murders have taken place, but then they haven't. So we're getting like these multi-layer, like, is it happening or is it not happening? The scene in the bathtub when like the curtain is pulled back. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're essentially going through what Melissa Sue Anderson is going through. Yeah. But mm-hmm. also, we get some good early 80s horror movie guy doing impressions in a movie when he goes oh, into my, when Peter Lorre. <laughs> when he does Quasimodo, and then he's doing his Peter Lorre. Very similar to Rene Obergine. Uh, Lloyd Bridges! When he does his Lloyd Bridges, oh, you're like, Whoa! One of the great oh. moments of the movie. He does yeah. a great Lloyd Bridges. He, does, yeah. he goes, here's my Lloyd Bridges. And you're like, that's an amazing, I didn't know you could do a Lloyd I Bridges. Know, that that's was amazing. great, that was great. Yeah. And I was waiting for the kebab the entire movie, but like, to make a kebab for someone on a date, like when you're like bringing them back home to yeah, like essentially have sex in front of your fireplace. To make like, out. Like, let's, no, let's no, have some no, kebab we, first. We couldn't help but mention it, okay? Oh, let's have some peppery beef and then make out. Yes. <laughs> like his, his, I want you to taste like a I, like I, brisket. I, I want you to eat, taste my onion that I just bought into and my bell pepper and my piece of beef. <laughs> but his is like, she's like, I want to make yours extra spicy because don't you like extra spicy things <laughs> and he's like yeah and she's like putting that spice on like with this giant spoon and it's just like covered it and he eats it and he's like mm, yeah, yeah that's spicy all right but, like what a guy will do to get laid i guess anything. he'll eat that kebab anything anything <laughs> that, that kill is also really great because it just goes like straight up his mouth and just like yeah, there it's it's wonderful it's but a great gag my favorite violence of the entire movie which i guess isn't really violence is the brain surgeon scene oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I was like Bleh. I had forgot about that sequence and I was like holy shit this is fucking disturbing when the brain starts growing out of the the, the, the hole in the skull when when it starts doing the the humongous moment where the (laughs) (laughs) for all the viewers out there just so you know first they cut open the scalp Mm -hmm. and then they roll back the scalp you gotta peel it back and then they take a drill and drill open the skull Four holes. Four holes. Yeah, but it's like they make hinges, all right? That's to, like, I to, to pop it loose. At that point, I had to look away because I was like, this is, like, the drill was just like, the f- ah! But the funny part is, like, once it starts swelling and they're like, oh, doctor, we have a problem. He's like, uh, uh. And he starts, like, kind of <laughs> trying to stuff the, the, the scalp lid back on and push the brain back in, like, just push that back in like you're uh, trying to. It's like closing a jar of the stuff. Yeah. It just doesn't want to go back in. Yeah. And what's, I, that, that really... Give me the Black & Decker, quick. <laughs> 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 that really freaked me out as a kid more than anything in that movie because she's awake. And I remember as a yeah. kid, I was like, wait a minute, why didn't they put her to sleep? It's like, 
Why is she awake? You have to be awake during brain surgery. Yeah. So you see your face going, ow, ow. I agree. The relationship between her and her therapist is like hilarious and also like clearly sexual. Um, she gives him a kiss and invites him to her birthday party, like and refers to him first name basis. And I was thinking, like, they're definitely like there's well, daddy issues going on. There's with her. definitely something going. And on. And then he stays. And the it's Jay Lee. Well, well, okay, it's Jay Lee Thompson. Well, Come on. Everything. Glenn Ford says is a fucking red flag to this yes. idea. Even to the point. Every button he unbuttons to reveal yeah. more of his chest hair. Even <laughs> to the point where uh, uh, somebody shows up, I think a cop or something, shows up to find out like, well, what's going on? Yeah, with, the uh, house. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been here all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the guy looks at him like, why, why are you like, here? Okay, yeah. say no fucking more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hint, she, hint, she, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I mean, everything he says, he says completely with a straight face and completely yeah, like- She's upstairs. Like, uh, she's uh, She can't come down right now. I've been here all weekend. <laughs> You're not supposed to come in. I'm here with her. Uh, I'll tell her. I got it from here. Yeah, I got it from here. <laughs> And I, I agree the mother acting is like over the top, but like deliciously over Delicious. the top. Deliciously, I know, I agree. I'm, like I was eating I'm not up. making fun of her. I, I love her. I it. felt like I was looking through like an old TV screen, like back in time into like an old funny show mm. where she's just acting over the top. And I love the flashbacks. The scene, Eli, that you mentioned when the, the bridge is coming apart and the yeah. car is mm-hmm. sitting there, that was so inventive. And they're really doing it. That's mm-hmm. what's so great. Yeah. No green screen, no bullshit. Mm-hmm. Get in the car. Open the bridge. <laughs> and if Melissa Action. Anderson was actually the killer, that's a pretty good triggering reason for her to go on this. Hell yeah. Especially if she doesn't know what she's doing. If yeah. she's uh, schizophrenic, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole thing that happens at the out. beginning. Oh, my God. That's actually a, a better motivation than most of these other killers have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just In fact, all of them. Yeah. And I don't want to spell that. I have to say it. Quentin, you just remind me, thinking back to the beginning of this movie, like knowing who the killer is, the the op- like parts of the opening just make so much more sense to me now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Yeah, they all jump in the bridge. Yeah, but it's gonna but, trigger her. But even like her being pushed into the car with yeah, him yeah, specifically yeah, 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 by yeah. her. Like yeah. it like it just makes so much more sense now. Like these things that I love that like it should have clued me in, but because there were so many red herrings, it didn't clue me in. And there's yeah. a lot of red and herring. This movie well, lays the movie. them on. Yeah. It is literally, it, it, it literally it has fun it, with it. Which again, is the thing that makes it not a faux jallo, but an actual jallo. No, it's a jar of herrings. Yeah, yeah. Herrings <laughs> everywhere. Oh, what did I call it? Happy herring to me? <laughs> it's herring jam. So it's herring in the Henderson. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I bought my VHS from RCA Columbia, Japan for $45. Originally, it retailed for 15,800 yen, which currently is 127 US dollars, but in 1981, it was $166. The tape number says it was 7,545, but I don't know which from which video store just yet, but I'll report back when I find it. Oh, oh the one you're buying from Japan? The one I'm buying from okay, Japan, yeah. yes. <laughs> I rented this on Amazon, but I just want to give a shout out to a company called Mill Creek Blu-ray, uh-huh. who does these VHS style line of Blu-rays. And mm-hmm. they've, I printed out a piece of paper mm-hmm. that has the picture of it, but they do like these VHS style Oh, wow, that is boxes. a VHS. I, I actually thought it was a VHS box. Yeah, I, 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 I saw, your, saw your thing on it. Yeah, yeah, they have a whole VHS line. And actually, Mill Creek, I think, used to be a budget uh, awesome. video company. Uh, they're, they're, maybe they're branching out. Yeah, but I would say if you want to pick up a actual physical copy of this and you don't have a VHS player... Try to get the Mill Creek Blu-ray VHS style line mm. box of this because it's super cool looking and probably worth the buy. Yeah. 
And I just want to do a quick shout out to Jacqueline Carmody, who uh, was in the editorial department on uh, Happy Birthday to Me, mm-hmm. and uh, who worked with us on Lucky Day. So, oh, good deal, cool. Shout out. Okay, let's get down to awards. Okay, so we'll start off with our uh, customer here. Okay, of the four films, best actor and best actress. Huh. It's like, how can you not absolutely love Nancy Allen and Dress to Kill? Mm. But I almost want to give a shout out to Alice Shepard. What's her name? Paula E. Shepard. Shepard. Okay. Between Paula Shepard and Nancy Allen, I, I think that I love Nancy Allen so much in Dress to Kill, mm-hmm. and she's brilliant in everything. It's hard, but she's Nancy Allen. That What Paula Shepard did as a kid actor, working kind of unknown at 19... Or as a, as a teen playing a, playing a kid actor. As a yeah. teen playing a kid actor. My favorite performance is her. I think the movie doesn't work without her. I think Nancy Allen is spectacular, but if someone else played the part, the movie would still work. I think the movie doesn't work, so I'm going to give it to Paula Shepard. Excellent. Okay. Because I love her. And then, um, I mean, for best actor, we got to go with Michael Caine. Okay. It's, yeah. just, it's just too good. It's like, it's not even fair to pretend there's anyone other than Michael Caine. <laughs> Kala. Um, Okay, so for best actors, I have to go with Nancy Allen in Dress to Kill. Mm-hmm. She brings this comedic quality to the role that you wouldn't always find, and she makes it really easy not to judge her, mm-hmm. especially like with her smarts. And part of that's the writing, but part of that's also her delivery. Best actor, I'm not going to give it to Michael Caine because in my opinion... His performance actually is intertwined and dependent on Bill Finley's performance as Bobby. Mm-hmm. So, as well as a myriad of other body doubles throughout. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, is the guy that like does the Quasimodo impersonation in Happy Birthday to Me, is that technically a lead actor? I think time? the only person that could qualify as a lead actor in uh, Glenn Ford uh, is Glenn, Glenn Ford. Ford. Yeah. I'll give it to Glenn Ford then. Okay. Why not? I love Glenn Ford. I'm happy about that. Look, I just, uh, in a list of, throw three other movies there, all right? In a a list of movies that includes Nancy Allen and Dress to Kill, I'm going to fucking pick Nancy Allen, all right? You know, uh, I think that's maybe her signature role, especially as a lead, it's her signature role. But also, along with Godard and Anna Karina, Brian De Palma and Nancy Allen are absolutely positively my favorite director, actress, husband, wife couple mm-hmm. in, in cinema history. They're my favorite of that, of that, that team up. And I think this is their best version of that. He obviously wrote it for her. And, um, you know, so it's, it's Nancy. Allen. And, and look, if, if there's a secondary one, it would be Linda Miller, but yeah, just Nancy Allen is just, that's it. Um, and my choice for best actor is absolutely Michael Caine. I mean, my, my feeling uh, on it is it actually interesting uh, on the Pure Cinema podcast, uh, Brian Sauer will say from time to time, he's a big disaster film fan. And he tries to make a case about Steve McQueen when it comes to Terry Inferno. That's <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite Steve McQueen performances. Now, I know what he- architects, you keep building them higher. Yeah. And- <laughs> now, I know what he means. I don't agree, per se, because that's just such a bad movie, all right? I, I don't, but I know what he means about what McQueen does bring to that film. But that's exactly my feeling when it comes to Michael Caine in uh, Dressed to Kill. You cannot compare- how little he ends up doing in the movie and how thin the character is to all this this vast array of characters and performances that Michael Caine has given. 
It's one of his most iconic roles in one of his most iconic movies. And the fact that he does so much with so little and makes such an impression, and he pretty much only has the first half hour to make that impression. It's one of the great Michael Caine performances. It's one of the most, it's definitely one of the most iconic Michael Caine performances. Okay, you know what? You're kind of turning me a little bit, Quentin, because uh-huh. when I think back now in my my memory, and I think about Michael Caine when he looks into the mirror, and you can actually see him making the actors mm-hmm. change, and you can actually see him becoming Bobby, I think you're right. I yeah, fold. You're I, right. Look, I mean, it, yeah. I are, you, are you are you jumping off yes, the Glenn Ford yes, horse yes, onto the Michael Caine? Yeah. Jumping right. on the Michael Caine horse. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to compare. I mean, look, I love Paula Shepard, but there's nothing like Nancy. I mean, it is. You're right. It's it's not fair. Dress, <laughs> dress skills going to win everything. I just want Paul Shepard to get some love. But yeah, I, I'm Nancy down Allen. with. No, I'm down with. Uh, no, there's no. There's is not better. I haven't than, voted yet. Yeah. Roger, okay. what are your Roger? Votes? Well, uh, okay, so my, it's, it's Michael Caine, obviously. <laughs> and, Yay, Michael and, Caine! And, Yay, Doctor Elliot! Finally, he's getting and, some recognition. And in in fact, almost more so because uh, apparently Sean Connery almost took this role. Yeah. Can you even imagine? It, that? I cannot. Imagine for as a ridiculous second. as Michael Caine looks in the Bobby outfit. Yeah. <laughs> that actually seems legit compared to Sean Connery. I need you to. I, had, I need you I, to look to, to my patient Bobby. I had my straight razor and now I've lost it. I've lost my straight razor. <laughs> I had my blonde wig now I've lost it. So it's Michael Caine without without question as best actor. I just love Michael Caine and and, and you know Dressed to Kill is one of my very favorite movies and so. Yeah, Michael Caine. Best Actress was much more difficult for me because, um, like you guys, I uh, Paula Shepard, fantastic. Reminded me of Pedro Connor uh, as Katie in The Visitor. Yeah, yeah actually. Uh-huh. And so I was having like, uh, I was like, kind of fully sold that I, I'm gonna definitely give it to Paula Shepard. And I was like, no. I have to give it to my girl, Lady Faye Dunaway. Okay. Who, uh, who I, who I, Lady Faye. <laughs> Lady Faye. I've got to give it to a, her. A former uh, Avery actress. <laughs> yeah. For, former. I, I've got to give it to her because I love her. And then you know, I started thinking about it. and I'm like, fuck it, uh, Nancy Allen. <laughs> I can't not give it to Nancy Allen. Yeah. It's just. It's just undeniable. In the toughest category of best actresses that we've had since we started the show, Nancy Allen wins hands down. In fact, my favorite moment with Nancy Allen is her interrogation, not by Michael Caine, but her interrogation by Dennis Franz. Franz. Uh, That thing where he's like, you know, so where were you? And she's like, well, I was at a friend's house. Oh, yeah, where was this friend? Oh, yeah, where? And like, he knows she's a hooker. Oh, Miss Blake. Oh, am I too crude for you? (laughs) (laughs) And I love the moment where she realizes he knows. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And so she immediately like sheet. lights up a cigarette and it's like, she okay, the act, yeah. she drops her act immediately. And, and she's still like compelling and sweet. And like, it's just undeniable. Nancy Allen is just Nancy Allen. And you can feel mm-hmm. that the director is in love with her as well. Yeah. And, and like that love is on screen. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's Nancy Allen, Michael Caine. Okay. So now moving on to best supporting actor and best supporting actress. I mean, for me, you know, it's between Keith Gordon and Renee Aubergenois. And Aubergenois, mm-hmm. I'm in love with the performance because I forgot and I was so charmed by him and he was so fun and funny and admittedly has just has to kind of come in and mm-hmm. and be like a mix of comic relief. Um, I just hadn't seen him be that like electric in a movie and mm-hmm. going for it. I well, mean, there, how- there, but there's actually... Real more than the other uh, uh, 
red herring characters. There is genuine nuance to his character that no, maybe isn't a, there for the other ones. Yeah, but every time you see him and uh, Brad Dorif uh-huh. is also amazing. Brad talk, Dorf is talking al- about he's always great. Big boys. Brad Dorif, who <laughs> is always great. <laughs> Big boys. In one of the best roles I've ever seen him in. Oh, he, it's one of my favorite. It's, this is actually my, that's my favorite Brad Dorf. That like, and Sunny Boy are my two favorite Brad Dorf yeah, performances. I mean, yeah. I. Crimson Suter in Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> Blue Velvet. I mean, how do you Blue not, Velvet, yeah. How do you not actually, love. I, I, I would actually give Brad Dorf best line reading of the whole thing where he goes, what are you doing with this knife? Cuddle a rope and shit. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Cut rope and shit. Just... That's, so, a great li- that's a great line to give a cop if they ever ask you, the way, why you why you have a knife. It's I, legal. I, it's I, legal. I, yeah, I know it's legal. Why do you have it? I mean, for me, the Cut rope and shit. Be- <laughs> Brad Dorf, Rene Bourgeois, Alfonso De Noble. Oh yeah, he's unforgettable. Oh, that, well, Talk about a sure. guy yeah. coming into a movie. Yeah, he's your walk in Pulp Fiction, the guy yeah. that comes in and yeah. does a couple scenes, and you're like, I will never forget that. And we're still talking. Uh, don't forget Dennis Franz and Dennis Franz. Dennis, okay, so, yeah, so, well, be, so, so who's your Keith choice? Gordon, it's got to be Keith Gordon. Okay, because Keith Gordon, as Roger said, of the entry point and the one you relate to. And the likability, and he's just the you know, most inno- the most innovative character. The most in, in, he is the most ingenious because like, there is the Keith Gordon character of the taxidermist in Happy Birthday to Me. Yeah, like yeah. that's the Canadian Keith Gordon. <laughs> yeah. So, but you can see when you don't actually have Keith Gordon. Is it Jack Plum, I believe? Spaz? That Bones. was good. Yeah. It's the Canadian Keith Gordon. So Canadian, Canadian Keith Gordon. But you could see where. The movie sort of stops when you don't have the Keith Gordon. When you have Gordon Keith or whoever it's yeah. It's like Keith David. There should have been a Gordon Keith, the David Keith, Keith David rivalry. But Keith Gordon's I, performance, I, I, I just love him. It was me. It was yeah. all of us. And I do think that Keith Gordon is less than in Christine. I yeah. don't think he's as good as he could have been in Christine. He 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 functions. But he's not the way he is in this. No. He, he's he, he's perfect in this. Well, I, I don't buy him <laughs> as much in Christine because, like, when he becomes like evil well, I don't or buy whatever, his, I, 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 I don't buy I, his I don't transition buy his to evil. I don't buy his I don't buy his dork, and I don't buy his cool guy. <laughs> yeah, his cool guy. But like in Dress to Kill, however, mm-hmm. he is the most true character to himself mm-hmm. in the in the because he is. Completely 100% committed. What is He's it? not like in any way yeah. trying to sleep with Nancy Allen. Yeah. He is. Well, he doing, wants to find out the murderer of his mom. He all is, right? he he's is got like re- a, relentless in that yeah. he's going to find out who the murderer is. But you brought up a really interesting thing when we were watching the movie that I thought was really sweet, actually. You were talking about how when he's outside the uh, Dennis Franz's yeah, office, office and he's interviewing the psychiatrist, and then when all of a sudden, you know, he pulls out his little sticker thing that he can yeah. stick on the wall. And then he's got the thing, go, uh, he's got a, a, a little earpiece ear piece in there. And then he can record what's being said and hear what's being said. And you yeah. were just saying, he goes, man, when that character started doing that, the first time I watched the movie, they go, wow, this character's so cool. Yeah. yeah you would just started thinking, wow, I want to have all that shit. That's cool. Well, he's doing he's, what you want to do. He's taking over the movie. He's, yeah. not, he's not being stupid. He's uh-huh. not falling down when he's chased. He's not doing anything like that. In fact, he is- He's the hero. He's the hero of the movie. He's rising to the occasion. He's going to find the killer. He doesn't care who stops him. Hey, you know, everybody treats him like he's a kid. Everybody kind of dismisses him. But mm-hmm. this one, he's a genius. Mm-hmm. 
Two, he's literally the one who calculates chronological reckoning mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> as yeah. the 1600s term of what a computer is. Yeah. Like, and he's- No, but even, even in his taking the photos of the patients coming at Dr. Elliot's office. Completely, yeah. completely. And then you told me something that I never knew, mm-hmm. which even deepened um, yeah. the relationship between uh, Peter and uh, De Palma. De Palma- thought that his father was having an affair with his mother and he wanted to catch his father in the act yes so he could give the information to his mother so she could divorce him and uh so the whole the whole thing that Keith Gordon does with his moped and his little camera taking a shot leaving his father was a doctor leaving his father's office De Palma did that to his own dad wow. he, actually, he actually did it <laughs> yeah he actually wow. did it and so that character that's actually is taken from wow, life that's amazing so, so I actually in my awards and I, I don't mean to jump in really quick but in my awards I was like look I'm gonna give it to Dennis Franz just because I love him in this movie mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, probably and then I was like well maybe I can give best character to Keith Gordon as opposed to best actor because <laughs> he's my favorite character. He's my entry. He's like, he's everything to me in this movie. He, well, but on the, something that we didn't talk about when we talked about the movie, okay, not only is he the Brian De Palma character of, of, of the piece, it's also interesting that De Palma casts a young boy to represent him. But the thing about the next movie is Blowout where Jack Terry, John Travolta's character is basically a very troubled Keith Gordon, yeah, Peter gr- Miller, grown having up, grown up, grown up. There's there's a symbiotic connection. A, a, that John continuity Travolta, to the yeah, characters. Yeah, John Travolta is supposed to be the grown up character who's suffered all this trauma, and now he's this kind of bitter, disillusioned guy. Yeah, but but, but both movies feature the character dealing with their technological apparatus to solve the the mysteries and the crime, and spend like you know six minute sequences. This was a that tough just category. show them off. Yeah, yeah. this, this was, was a hard. tough. I mean, this even hard the, for me. even the priest in yeah. Alice, Sweet Alice, was amazing. Yeah, but. I mean, that's what, you know, with supporting actress, and it's weird because she would be billed as lead actress, you'd have to say Angie Dickinson. Oh, I think Angie Dickinson is it's not even for a, sure. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. even. Okay, so so you, so you picked Keith Gordon, Keith right? Keith Gordon and Angie Dickinson. Keith Gordon, okay, how about you? Um, I'm actually, for Best Supporting Actress, going to go with the aunt in Alice, Sweet Alice. Oh, wow, okay. I loved her performance in the hospital scene. I think her screaming and falling down the stairs was really funny. It like reinvigorated the movie for me. Yeah, Jane Lowry. Jane Lowry. I just really enjoyed her performance um, and also how her character completely flips in that scene. Best supporting actor, I have to give it to Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif, I yeah. love you. Yep. Brad Dorif, if you're listening out there, you have a fan in me, a lifelong fan. Yeah. You're one of my favorite actors and I'm so happy that I can give you my pick for best supporting actor. Well, look, uh, a supporting actress is easy. That's Angie Dickinson. All right. Yeah. I mean, there's almost as if no competition. It's actually brave for her to come into this movie, mm-hmm. you know, to be killed in the first, you know, part of the movie. She loved the movie. She thinks it's, she thinks that along with Rio Bravo, it's her best movie. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd agree with her. I like Point Blank, but not her in Point Blank as yeah. much as this. Okay. Best of all, look, I, I'm going to go against, I, I acknowledge everything you guys said about Keith Gordon. And it's may, a tough category. And maybe- It's a tough category And maybe sure. it should be the one I choose, and maybe it's the one deep down that I think is correct, but I'm going to pick Renee- Aubergenois. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think- uh, 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 Big boys. Yeah. No, he's he's playing with the big boys now. Big boys. No, he was my it's, original it's pick. It's the most detailed yeah. character. It's the most detailed character of, uh, I think, of, of the group in its own way. Okay. Director. Okay, uh, it's Brian De Palma. It's yeah, I mean the only the second close it would be Alfred Soule, but it's yeah, De Palma, sure. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. De Palma. I'm giving it to Kirshner. I think he has a wonderful, eclectic, 
collection. I mean, De Palma split after all. But I think <laughs> Kirshner has an amazing eclectic cast. I think every single character that we've talked about that's in that movie gives great performances. I think that his camera work is amazing. So I think that Victor Kemper. he's going to get a best director for me this time. Yeah, I think it's absolutely De Palma because I think I can make a case that Dress to Kill is one of the best directed movies ever made. I mean, you—it's yeah. a directed movie. Yeah, I mean, we all were gobsmacked by the end of it. All and of like, all I mean, of us having seen it many times I mean, before. Like, I mean, the other movie brat that that Brian De Palma is like sim- symbiotically connected to is Martin Scorsese. When they were both friends, and they're the yeah. ones that of the movie brats went to the rougher material for sure, uh, and. They kind of had, they were, had a friendship, but they also had a rivalry uh, a little bit where they wanted to top the other one. And I, Brian De Palma told me a very great story once when I was hung out with him. And uh, he's talking about he's doing Blowout. He's got a big star in John Travolta. He's got a, you know, a, a big budget because of, uh, uh, because of Travolta's participation. So he has all the time and all the money he needs to make his little thriller. So he's really able to do every, every big set piece he's ever wanted to do. It's all right there. And he goes, I think I'm doing a pretty fucking great job. You know, I'm really, really happy with myself. And then during the weekend, Raging Bull comes out. (laughs) So I go see it on my day off on Sunday. And I think I'm making a really fucking great movie. This is the one. This is the one. And I sit down in the movie theater. And then those opening credits start. And that Opera music starts playing. It's just the black and white slow motion shot of Jake LaMotta just kind of bouncing around in the ring as the credits play. And it's just so beautiful and so perfect. And I sit there and I looked at the screen and I just go, there's always Scorsese. (laughs) No matter what you do, there's always Scorsese. He's always there and he's always being brilliant. There's always Scorsese. (laughs) (laughs) The rantings of a homicidal maniac, like alone in a theater, like in a dark theater, rocking back and forth. That'll be his explanation at the end of his killing spree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's the ranting of an artist who considers himself one of the greatest, but he's in in competition with another great artist. So another way to say it is Bing Crosby talking about Frank Sinatra saying, Frank Sinatra is the voice of a generation. Unfortunately, it was my generation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, using, again, the correlation between Scorsese and De Palma. Um, if Carrie is his taxi driver, then yes, Dress to Kill is his raging bull. Do we all agree that Dress to Kill is best picture? I think Carrie is better. I mean, but, but, oh, yeah, 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 oh, this, oh, oh, I yeah. think for sure. <laughs> I'll be surprised if anybody picks anything else. You're fudging it with, er, with Irv Kirshner. No, because- I, would, I would pick Happy Birthday to me to be like difficult, but it's better. I mean, Dress to well, Kill, it's not even close. Yeah, because one, one person has all the, the tools that a studio is offering him and like a uh, big budget and big stars. The other one is like working with nothing. But it's and- also like for kitsch value, you know, it's just yeah, fun. Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. It's like junk food. Okay, but here's another one. Best screenplay. Well, got, we got four very interesting screenplays here. All four of these screenplays are very are, are very interesting, and they all 
even though some of them work on a camp level, they actually are effective on a camp level. Mm-hmm. So, uh, look, I still pick Bad Dress to Kill Best Screenplay. <laughs> well, having read the screenplay uh-huh. uh, for this, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Brian De Palma as, mm-hmm. you know, screenplay as well. But I, having said that, though, I would put the Alice Sweet Alice screenplay, it, like, would that, be a definitive number two. Yeah, That's, absolutely, in a second. Like a strong, same. strong number two. A down there number two, but a strong number two for director as well. Yeah, no, the same. I, I felt the same. I mean, it's it's undeniable. Also, you know, we think of De Palma, I think of Scarface, or I think of, you know, his v- incredible visual style. But like you said, he just doesn't get that respect as a great screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And this is the one where it's written. This is the one. This is the... It's an piece in every way. Honestly, I was going to give it to Carpenter and Goodman for Eyes of Laura Mars. And then Eli rewrote the ending of that. And I liked... <laughs> Eli's ending better. <laughs> you give it to all three of us. Yeah, but I think like you came up with it mostly, so <laughs> I'm kind of like I'm, I'm choosing Eli Ross rewrite. <laughs> if I could, yeah, his just, remake. Yeah, yeah when, when Eli does remake, the remake, will uh... that'll be like my best uh, my best screenplay of the week. But which, by the way, this really would be a good remake with the way media is today mm-hmm. and uh, with the idea of all these kind of nested perspectives and yeah. everything. Yeah, well, I'm gonna go for it with De Palma because I can't get over how good Eli's rewrite of the end is. Okay, I already said my favorite bad performance, which is the mother in Happy Birthday to Me, but Tommy Lee Jones would be second (laughs) for best bad performance. (laughs) Tommy Lee Jones is a strong number two in that. He can't beat the mom in Happy Birthday to Me. Nobody can. (laughs) I'd say his performance is really good until that one rather clumsy uh, exposition scene where he's revealing his insanity. No, but he's wonderfully bad. (laughs) It's deliciously bad, as as Gala would say. Delicious. Question, guys. Who's the best villain of the week? No, I was going to ask that. Good good for you. I was going to say, we're talking about Jallos. Who's the mm. best killer? Well, to, in order to say the best killer, I would, I mean. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I don't want to say it, but I would say the killer from Alice Sweet Alice. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my pick also, actually. Yeah. It's pretty damn good killer. It's I, so know, good that we're not going to tell you who it is. Yeah. Uh, well, Bobby's my favorite De Palma killer. I think that there was more continuity to the performance of Bobby, if it wasn't split up between three different performers playing it, I would choose Bobby. But because it's so obvious to me the way it's split up, and yet it still nevertheless works, it stops Bobby from completely being the full character. Uh, you but, know, maybe, I, but maybe doesn't that enhance the character? Wasn't that used as a device to create this kind of uh, um, schizophrenic yeah. Yeah, because, well, because yeah. we're talking about best I villain. Mean, it, it, well, yeah, no, no, it, it, well, we're not really talking about best actor. We're talking no, about I best know. villain. And so for them to use all the, this kind of panopticon of uh, this kaleidoscope well, of characters. Yeah, but the play, has done this. The poem has done this before in the past. And I think there is a thing about a, an actor playing a killer. And then and, and it gets wrapped up in the performance that makes it, I don't know, I, I just, I think the only reason that the killer in Alice Sweet Alice can eat an apple off of Bobby's head is because one character is playing it and they commit to it so absolutely positively much. Yeah. Yeah. And the reveal is a good surprise. Mm -hmm. Sort of fooled by that. Like I didn't see Alice Sweet Alice or Happy Birthday to Me uh, on their initial release. Mm -hmm. I did see Dress to Kill and Eyes of Laura Mars Mm -hmm. on my, on initial release. And I can tell you that Bobby scared the fucking bejesus out of me. Mm-hmm. I was terrified watching that movie. And when Bobby jumps out of the shoes mm-hmm. and, and then out of a mirror, I, I, I'm like, I'm tweaking in the theater. So then I, Bobby is your favorite killer. I got to go with Bobby. It just 
scared the hell out of me. Okay, is that the end of our show? Yes, actually. Uh, well, actually, I, I want to just say best cinematography, Victor oh, Kemper. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Victor Kemper. Oh, I mean, no, 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 I'm no, gonna, no, 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 no. You're going to go with El Sweet Ellis? No, I'm going to go with Ralph D. Bode for Dress to Kill. I would Ray, go Ralph uh, D. Bode as well. Bode, yeah. He also yeah. did my favorite John Hughes movie, Uncle Buck. Hmm. Well, you're right. Yeah. yeah uh, I would it, go with Ralph D. Bode as well. I wonder what else Ralph D. Bode made in 1979. Because Victor, <laughs> Victor Kemper shot... F- Four fucking great movies in uh, Well, be three, a scumbag and look it up on IMDb, you millennial fuck. <laughs> well, I can tell you what those <laughs> Listen, what about Michael Kahn? Best editing for oh, Isaac Laura Mars. I agree with that. I'd give it to Jerry Greenberg for Jerry <laughs> Dress, Dress to Kill. Kill yeah. yeah, in fact, not, not only that, De Palma's first movie away from Paul Hirsch for like 10 years. And Jerry Greenberg does a great job. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm desperate to give Eyes of Laura Mars some tech credit. So let's go with best production design with Gene a, Callahan. Oh. I'd give that to Al Sweet Alice. Al <laughs> <laughs> Sweet Alice, best original song. Yeah, you're song. right. Actually, actually, you're right. Al Sweet Alice with its uh, period, oh, period depiction design. and period design. And we gave Renee, Renee, oh, all right. But what about, yeah. Tech credits, <laughs> tech credits. This spectacular. if you say that. Or you could say best original song from Eyes of Laura Mars, <laughs> sung by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> only the, I only, that's the only I version would, I want to listen I, to. Best disco, I would say best, best soundtrack. Yeah, be, yeah best uh, music supervisor. All right. Uh, yeah, best uh, Laura Bar, for sure. For the Michael Ziegler. Uh-uh. Hey, hey, that's Okay, everybody. I think that does it for our American Jallo episode, our very first theme episode. And I think it worked out very well. We want to thank our customer. Thank you, Eli. Thanks, Eli. Eli. Grazie. And I want to thank Gala. Thanks, guys. See you next time. And my co-host, Roger Roberts Avery. Thank you. Be seeing you. Bye-bye. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richman and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellam. We now have Video Archives merch. Go to podswag.com to see everything we have in stock. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart.
Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.